Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley, and I am your host. And I am here to tell you a little bit about our next guest. His name is Dan Sanfilippo, and he is an awesome dude. Dan has done 90%, we figured this out, 90% of 25 years of his life in prison. He is 46 years old. He started the incarceration journey at about 13, and um, he currently has, I think, about eight years of sobriety under his belt and is a contributing positive member of society. He came on and shared his incredible story with us. And I wanted to give a quick disclaimer because when we're talking about the prison population and prison life, there is a lot of talk about race. So much so that I think it needs to be said that the way that Dan and I talked about race was as it relates to prison and prison lifestyle and prison culture, which is a very bold, uh, specific environment. And it needs to be talked about in that way when we are discussing it, because that's the reality. However, it can sound a bit abrasive and politically incorrect if you're listening to it from having no experience with the prison system. I say that so that you have some perspective when you hear things talking about race and bringing race up when normally we would never have that conversation. The California prison system, I don't know if most people know this, but it is legally separated by race. I believe it is one of the only populations, uh, circumstances in which people are legally allowed to be separated by race. And as you will hear in Dan's story, it is actually uh, a survival tool mechanism for people to identify with a certain group and culture in order to survive in that environment. So I just wanted to come on here and say, this is going to sound different than a lot of the conversations you're going to have, maybe, maybe not. And uh, if you don't relate to it, that's okay. We were talking about uh, a specific thing. So I hope you enjoy it and get a lot out of it and maybe learn something new or find something to relate to, relate to the feelings um, and see that we can and do recover. All right. Now that I've prepped you, let's do this. Dan, welcome. Um, really grateful that you agreed to be here and to do this. Um, yeah, no, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm super honored to be here, actually. Yeah, so I, I'm really excited for everybody to hear your story because you, you are not the average alcoholic, right? I mean, that is you, we were talking about this. Like, yeah. you're just your story is not people don't often make it out. Uh, to sobriety from where you came from. And I do want to get into, I don't, you know, like I, like, you know, we talk about war storying, right? Well, like in your case, we kind of need to know the war story because it puts into perspective the recovery story, right? Although, you know, the, your recovery story is a lot like my recovery story is a lot like every, you know, we all 
kind of got sober the same way, but where you came from, what you had to overcome is very different. So I want you to talk to us about that. You did you so all in all, you've done twenty five years in prison. Is that right? About ninety percent of twenty five years is what I okay is what okay. I've, I've calculated. Ninety <laughs> percent of twenty five, yeah, basically. Okay, and yeah. that and that, but none. But what was the longest stretch in there? It was eight years. Was eight years at eighty five percent. So. Whatever. That Whatever. Okay, so you're going by either, oh you you guys have like a language that I'm not. Okay, so you're you're going by convictions and sentences, like eight year sentence, and then how much you did. Yeah. So there's terms, right? So right. I did a four year term. I did a six year term. I did an eight year term. I did an eighteen month term. I did you know three another three year term. Yeah. And so those are sentences that they give you, and right? Then they, and they, then you and do, they, do and a percentage. you have to do a percentage of it based on whatever. I'm a two striker, so it's eighty five percent versus fifty. Got it. Halftime or thirty five percent. You're only a two striker. Well, two striker. Meaning oh yeah, third. The next yeah, one the you're next done. one you're so, done. Are we so still doing that 80, in California? I think I think so. I don't know. Now that I've been out of that. Yeah, you're like I'm not even world, gonna like, pay I don't attention. Even care. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm the oldest of our immediate family. I have a brother okay. and two sisters that are from my mom and dad, and then my dad had a previous marriage where I have a half sister that lives in Minnesota who's older. Okay. Uh, we. Really never really we didn't grow up together though. So I mean I know her and she's my sister, but we we didn't, you know, live in the same house. So um What was your so your fa- are your parents still married? They are. So you go, your home was a you know, married household. So how long have they been married? Um forty five years. Okay, forty five years and what was it like? You grew up in San Diego. What was that like? So I was born in Burlingame, California. Which oh, yeah. Is NorCal. Up, yeah, NorCal in San Francisco. That's I where think, I'm from, that area. I think we lived there for like, I don't know, a year or two. And okay. then, and then uh, we moved to San Diego. I went to Mills High School for six months, which I'll get to there. But yeah, so I, uh, we, I had pretty much, a, you know, what you would think is, a, I guess, somewhat normal. I mean, I was a kid, just a baby then, but born into like this 22 room mansion in Burlingame. Yeah. My dad was like, my dad's been a millionaire like five different times throughout his life. Like yeah. made it, lost it, made okay. it, lost it, made it, lost it's it. Very Silicon I, Valley I, of him. Yeah. I totally believe he's, 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 he's an alcoholic, but he doesn't, but whatever. <laughs> but, um, cause how can you do that? I mean, anyways, you have to have some kind of an idea. <laughs> Some kind of drive that makes you, you know, be able to do that. Some people never make a million. And today, a million dollars isn't really a lot of money, you know. Yeah. But I was going to say, I mean, Burlingame is a a very. Very, yeah. That's like Laguna Beach or whatever area I call it. But um, we moved to San Diego. And uh, I mean, as a kid, I have very uh, limited memories of being a child prior to the trauma and then being just in this whole other hostile world. But for the most part, it was, you know, a normal family, you know, dinner at certain time every night. My dad was sometimes there, sometimes wasn't. He's a workaholic, you know, you're always working. But uh, around five years old from what I'm told, and my mother became a Jehovah's Witness. Your mother became? Yeah, she was, she was somebody knocked on the door. She's a flamenco dancer, beautiful, beautiful. She's um, Spanish, and my father's Irish and Sicilian. So he and he, whatever he, you know, 
he lied to her about his age and you know, mm-hmm. she's older than, than he is by like five years. And, uh, anyways, they, uh, they, he's been basically an atheist for the most part right. of, you know, I think he still is. Yeah. Um, but he's starting to get a glimmer of the, you know, there's because of my experience, right, that there's gotta be something else something. out there. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, so from that point, kind of growing up, it, it became this, uh, it became this kind of this battle of me watching my father, um, very like egotistical, um, you know, millionaire made self made. I know, you know, very, very intelligent, obviously, and kind of not in agreement with my mom becoming this Jehovah's Witness, yeah. right? Of all things, like yeah, that's a, that that's... was not what he wanted his life to be like. And, yeah. it, and it showed like it was, you know, dinner time, you know, uh, we, we, we were, we were going, I remember going to, uh, you know, cause I've always believed that when you when you feel things, yeah, you remember them yeah. and it doesn't matter how far back you go. So I sat at tables with my, you know, whoever was born, at this time, family, friends of my dad's basically in, in, you know, Christmas or Thanksgiving dinners and watch him ridicule her, you know, in front of his friends, make fun of her and just kind of like, and she would just take it. You know, she's, she's probably the most, uh, this toughest woman I've ever come across. I'm sure everybody says that about their mom. Right. But, uh, she would just take it. She was not, she was, I never heard her once like scream and yell or fight. I've heard him, you know, when we were kids, but he drank a lot and, and, but worked a lot too. But so I remember those instances Mm -hmm. where, you know, he he would put her down in front of people. Like she was always getting put down because of that. And, um, I remember that I remember, but you you didn't grow up Jehovah's because my husband's families, they didn't celebrate Christmas or they didn't celebrate any holidays. So she did not bring that on to you guys. It was, you grew up, Basically, with your dad's traditions. No, no, no. So after she became like a practicing, you know, you know, uh, baptized Jehovah's Witness, then she they battled over that. You right, know? right. I obviously wasn't around, so I never cared, anyways, because I didn't celebrate Christmas, Thanksgiving, right. or in, in, right. in the this California Youth Authority issue, yeah. Juvenile or prison. Yeah. So uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> right. not me, a, I didn't, a big issue for you. Yeah, didn't have that problem. But, you know, I remember I have just little, very, very small, vague, th- those are those are mainly what I remember, things like that. And, you know, going to Mission Bay in San Diego as a kid, riding bikes and stuff like that. And um, but but for the most part, you know, my mind goes as a, as an addict alcoholic, my mind goes to what's wrong. Like, where's the dirty spot on this white piece of paper? That's what I zero in on. And, um, you know, going back in, in in my life, I now that it's become apparent to me what happened when I turned nine years old, that's kind of where everything starts for me. Right, right. And I'll, and I'll just talk about that. So at nine years old, you know, in San Diego, living on, on Coronado Avenue in between like Point Loma and Ocean Beach, my parents were gone in Australia for a couple of weeks. My mom's stepbrother and had came with my grandfather to watch us uh, kids. And, and for two weeks, I was sexually abused, right? And, and by given step. by the stepbrother. And like, I don't call that, like, that wasn't when I chose to drink, but I was like, he was giving me beers to, you know, drink them as fast as I could and all yeah. this stupid stuff that, that happens when, you know, people are just, you know, like that, whatever they do to, to kids. I, I still can't 
process it in yeah. my like but um and so you were nine and how old was this guy i would say probably t- mid-20s you know 28 maybe how often you know for a guy like you to you know and and for people that i mean you're a jujitsu fighter you you've been you know like you are a by for all intents and purposes a badass like how does that fit into your equation in terms of like is that a is that a difficult thing to say do you feel like no i've i've reconciled with that i think people need to like where where does this part of your story feel like what does that feel like for you i mean yeah, a, you it's know, a weird question it but it doesn't it doesn't um like doing speaking and different yeah. things in different places colleges and, and i've actually had people come up and just say man you know thank you so much for yeah. sharing that like i i would never say that but, yeah, but can I, I talk to you later yeah and that's happened to me and that right. kind of stuff and so those little kind of you know release because it's a release for me it's like ah uh, you know what <laughs> i've done so, yeah. so many yeah. worse things right like, right um, that's something that happened to me and it's like if you can't talk about it you know it's right. it's but it's uh but i wouldn't i i guess the i guess there's a there's a factor there right so i was told specifically don't like if i said anything you know my sisters would be harmed my parents would be harmed you know and uh for a kid you know looking back right uh, with hindsight and knowing what I know now about kids and all, you know, just my experience yeah. today, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to know how I'm doing today, ask me next week. Because <laughs> <laughs> right now I'm in the the mix, you right? Know? But I had to swallow it down, right? Yeah. And um, and the the thing about th- that particular abuse with my life is that's what inflamed and just started this this nightmare snowball of insanity and running. Like I left as soon as my parents came home, I could not tell anybody anything, but I ran away the second that they were home. Like you ran away from home. Like literally like ran out of the house. Like I was out of here and uh, I had, you know, I was still going to school and I had friends that were, you know, kind of ocean beaches is really like where I was kind of nurtured before I went into juvenile and it's, pretty much middle to lower class, white trash at the time. Um, Bikers, you know, the Hells Angels, the Mongols were going at it then, fighting with each other, these outlaw biker gangs, and it was pretty much like... It's very different Convicts, yeah, it's very different. (laughs) I was going to say, that's not the OB I know. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of convicts running around the streets, tattoo artists, and anyways, um, you know, bikers, and there 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 was great methamphetamine at the time. But I, you know, there was these... Rats, we called, we were called basically, but the kids that really whose parents are these people and they don't give a shit where they are at any point in time at, at the night. Right. And and they were going to school trying to make it and they were like the outcasts, right? The punkers, the so that's who I was, you know, kind of hanging out with. And um, and I ran to be away from my father because he wasn't there to protect me. So I hated him. I couldn't tell him anything or my mom. And and it it was almost like I downloaded exactly what I was supposed to not do and did everything but (laughs) to make sure that they felt pain for what I went through because I blamed him for not being there to protect me as the man of the house. I mean, this is how I've... Was that in your head? Like, was, was that dialogue in your head? 
Or no, it was just a. It, that's why I say it's just it's a reaction. Hindsight. Yeah, it's yeah. hindsight. Yeah. It was like a, it was a, it was immediate. It was just an impulse. Yeah. And it and it wasn't just a one time yeah. thing. It was like my father would drive my mother. God bless her soul and her heart and her. She was like, I mean, imagine a, a mother who's got not only doesn't know that this happened, yeah, but can't figure out why all of a sudden out of the blue she comes back from Australia for two weeks and her son is not coming home ever again, doesn't know what's going on with him, but he's out on the streets at nine years old and she's like a worried, like you would be for your own nine-year-old oh God, out yeah. on the streets. And like, why won't he come home? I'm like, I'll never, when I finally like, Talked to her a couple of times because I always always had that. She was a good woman. My father, he wasn't a bad person, but, you know, he lost his little ability to have some kind of credibility with me by the way he treated her with, you know, you know, that whole Jehovah's Witness thing of ridiculing her. The running on the streets, like my dad would, it was things like this, like he'd pull up to a group of people down in Ocean Beach at the wall and like pull out a fake DEA badge, like that's how insane he was, like asking where I was. And these guys would drop all their dopeets. Like me and my other friend would like go back over there. We'd be hiding like, and, grab all and of we'd it. grab all the dope because oh these guys God. all thought like he was actually a DEA agent, but he's just trying to find me. <laughs> Dad, do it again. And who's pulling his strings? The woman at home who's like, you better, yeah. you know, yeah, fine. I, not come home until you get my son. But you know what I mean? So yeah. there's so much psychological a background behind right, that right, but you- and I get it today because you know I understand what he what he went through and I it took so that went on it was always things like that went on and on and on like he was constantly like everybody was watching the cops on the streets at three in the morning and for my dad like <laughs> that's what everybody else beats knew like yeah this dude is crazy and he saw drug dealers and he was like you know, he was young then, he had a gun, and he was like, you know, if somebody does something on my son or, like, I catch you guys around him, like, they were afraid of him. They were, we were young, right? So, and then the older, the grown-up, because I decided to let an outlaw biker gang down there be my family instead of them. Naturally. And because I thought, you know what, you know, the the pain that I had in my chest of guilt and shame and just what had happened and... Just the uncomfortable, just whatever that stuff does yeah. to you when that thing happens to you, you know, was I, I felt better with anything else going on. Like, you know, within a couple of weeks of being out there, I'm in these biker neighborhoods or biker parties where there's chains and knives and, you know, leather jackets and guns and, and people drinking Jack Daniels. And, and and I don't know if you've ever seen that type of uh, environment, but the women and it's just, it's very, uh, <laughs> it's not your normal party. No. And, uh, and sometimes there's like that, that, I had the mother figures, right. That were like, you know, they, they tried to be the mom for the kid that they, you know, yeah. they probably w- weren't a mom for, you know right. what I mean? Totally. There's so much, yeah, there's, it gets so yeah. deep, the levels yeah. of things yeah. I could go back and, and think of why people did what they did. But I remember to, like the first thing was watching these guys they were doing shots and i'm 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 curious like i'm i would say curiosity killed the cat but <laughs> satisfaction brought him back right <laughs> so i'm like i i gotta i'm watching these guys do these shots they're playing quarters or whatever and they're like hey youngster you know what are you looking at come over here you want to you want to try this so i'm like of course yeah I do. so i go over and i do a shot of jack daniels and 
that became my 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 big brother for the rest mm-hmm. of my life and um and immediately right like i'm yeah. i'm totally cool that i'm that 9 year old you just talked about yeah. completely comfortable, comfortable. Yeah. in this arena where i was not a second ago like i was constantly like whoa this is crazy like yeah. just crazy stuff but uh and those are real guns <laughs> you know yeah. Yeah. but um i was just like uh oh, everything's cool and me and the other kids are getting along better now. Like we're all cool. And then, you know, probably another week. I remember it wasn't long after that, like another week or two after that. And these guys are, you know, a different crew are sitting there chopping up these white lines on this big mirror. and They're spelling out their last name, you know, each of them. And they're just putting this tutor in their nose and they're snorting it up. And I'm watching that. And they're like, Hey, and I'm like, they're like, what's your last name? I'm like, Oh, my last name's long, too. You know? <laughs> I'm like, you want to try this? Yeah. And I'm like, sure. So I did, and I was up for 14 days. Oh, my God. Literally, like, because this is in the 80s when there was actually real, not bath salt, not this yeah. crap that everybody's doing today. Like, this was real methamphetamine, real crank, real P2P dope. So Jack Daniels and methamphetamine became my 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 formula for getting rid of that feeling of I don't, want to be here, which I never wanted to be anywhere because I just wasn't okay with what had happened, you know, but I couldn't say anything. And I slowly but surely like buried that yeah. experience to the point where I didn't even remember it. It yeah. was gone and buried it alive. And I'll, and I'll, you know, I'll, t- I'll circle back to that, you know, later when I, when I came to it, but you know, so at 11 years old, I wound up in juvenile hall for uh, Grand Theft Auto, like a lot of high speed chases. Like, like I should be. You're, you're in the car. You're and I'm just a yeah. kid. Yeah. 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 And they're and, like, uh, were, so were they like, where are your parents? What's going on? What are you yeah, doing? Yeah. So here? I have to go. I, so I go to juvenile hall. You have to go home. There's no, there's, you're not yeah. like, oh, yeah, well, let me out. I don't live anywhere. Like, yeah. you're going home. Yeah. Or you're going to a, <laughs> yeah. you know, a Foster group here. home yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah. So I would go home. And I would literally, like, they'd come to court. They'd be like, oh, my God, I don't know what's going on, you know, with this kid. And, you know, I'd, and that happened. Like, I think I went to juvenile hall, I don't know, maybe seven times, you know, before I actually got sentenced to the California Youth Authority at, at 13. But I would go. My parents would be in there. My mother would just be sick. My mm-hmm. dad would just be like, he doesn't know what's going on. And, and you know, they didn't, they didn't know what was going on with me, right? They had no clue. I would go to Texas for six months with a family member, and, you know, instead of going as an alternate sentence. Right, right, right. And then I'd go to Lawton, Oklahoma with another family member. And I, and I would just like, it was okay over there because my cousins, like they all drank and it was yeah. cool. Drink beer, sit, get in the back of a Camaro and circle the yeah, block yeah. in Texas, which was like the thing to do. And yeah. Yeah. It was just trouble to there too. Like I'd get in trouble there yeah. too. So I, I'd come back and, uh, you know, maybe I didn't go to jail there at the time or juvenile hall, but I, I'd come back and, uh, you know, I'd just manipulate my way back. Like, okay, Uncle Mike or, you know, whoever it was, like, I got to go back. Like, I'm ready. This is, I learned my lesson, if you will, or whatever. And then I'd go back and I'd go right back to the same, you know, thing. So after incidences of being in, in you know, joyriding and, and going to juvenile hall so many times, finally at, at uh, 13 years old, I remember like yesterday, I'm sitting in there waiting to, I mean, they tried to send me, they were going to send me to uh, some Arizona program. I can't even remember what it is now, but they had like horse carriages and and, and you go out for two years, you're, you're on this like trip across America or something. I forget what it was called. Uh, but 
I didn't I didn't qualify for that because I had too many instances. Previous. So I remember like yesterday, my dad and my mom in the courtroom, and the last thing that I got charged for that kind of put me into serious hot water and and time was the was two counts of accessory to attempted murder and armed robbery at I'll thirteen years old, right? Yeah. So I remember that the DA, like the lawyer, was again trying to fight to get me to go to Texas or whatever. And um Yeah. And send the, him back to Oklahoma. Send yeah, him back to Texas. Yeah, anything. Yeah. And the DA because the, the DA's like, uh, Your Honor, Mr. I'll never forget. Like I said, when you feel yeah. things you remember, right? Yeah. Sitting in the courtroom, Your Honor, Mr. Sanfilippo runs with a group of people who shoot people gratuitously and have no regard for life. And I looked over, I was like, oh, shit, because I was always, like, not wanting my mom to know the yeah. bad stuff that yeah. her angel was yeah, doing, yeah. you know? As if she didn't know by this point. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> what she really didn't, like, she worried on where I was, but she didn't, I mean, she knew, like, I would get in trouble, but she didn't know all the stuff that I didn't get in trouble for, you know? <laughs> right. And I was now here I am, you know, going to the California Youth Authority at so 13 they sent, years old. They, they sent. sentenced me to eight years in the oh. California Youth Authority. And um, for, so from 13 to 21 is what I, the time that, and I didn't do it all at once. I did three years. Then, and, uh, at, you know, on the Youth Authority in California, you, you go up for parole. So you can actually get out after a certain amount of time if, you know, you can convince the parole board that you've, you know, you've rehabilitated. And California Youth Authority, so I just want to say CYA, from what I know of it, which is where they were talking about sending me. So when I hear this stuff, I'm like, oh, God, I like I've just completely, you know, blessed that this did not happen. But I remember when my lawyer, they were talking about that. And it is, from what I understand, from what people have said, a scarier place than many prisons. Like it is absolutely terrifying and as violent as like a California Youth Authority does not sound, does not give it a name. Yeah. That <laughs> no, without a doubt, without a doubt. They, I went to Fred C. Nellis from 13 to 16. I was, and Fred C. Nellis is closed now as of, I think it's 12 years now they've closed it, something like that. It was in Whittier and they, they closed it because they were breeding. I remember reading an article, they're breeding too many monsters, like literally, but that's what they did. It was, it was, you have 13 years old in the California Authority to 25 years old. Oh my God. The range of ages. So, right. Which you can't do in any other area. No, no. And for, and for, for, for me, so once you turn 18, then you're only with the, like, so if you get in trouble or caught and you turn 18, now you're going to the, to the youth training school, y, uh, uh, Chino, YTS, which is the precursor to, going to prison. Like if you're a kid in there, I was in there with a lot of like murderers and lifers that are going to do life, right? Whatever you could say. But they were, they were underage. You could say that they're, they're being, they're not tried as an adult. <clears throat> Some of these guys never got out. Like they went to, to, to California Youth Authority, then they went to prison. And from there they're, they're, you know. And they knew that that was the way it was going to be. Yeah, like, yeah. I like, like that yeah. was the plan. Yeah. Cause you, cause you got to figure in the eighties, um, it was, well, not eighties, 89 now. So 86, 87, 88, 89, I was in Whittier, L.A., and so there's, like, 13 lodges. This place I walk into. Lodges. Right? I love that there's they There's 13 lodges. lodges or whatever you want to call it with 90 people on each one, okay? There's 11 total white boys in the whole institution. And, wait, how many people did you so say So there's there 90 times 13, and there's 11 
white, white boys. boys. The rest are blacks, Mexicans, like literal gangbangers. So right? you walk in, you're 13, you're one, are you one of 11 I'm or are you 12? One, no, I'm one of 11. Oh and this is not with me on the bus yeah, coming yeah, yeah, yeah. This is total in the prison at the time. Yeah. Did they like, you find out real quick how many white guys are here. And there's Were like, you like one there, Spanish, there's my mom's Spanish. two there, there's two there. No, I just, because of Ocean Beach, I, I, I ran. Why I didn't speak Spanish because yeah, I didn't. Yeah, my mother, yeah, I didn't know Spanish. Yeah, I didn't know Spanish. So you couldn't have. So I uh, and I didn't know. I really didn't know. You know, you don't know anything yeah. at thirteen yeah. years old about prison politics for sure. But there's more politics in this youth authority, you know, world than anything in state prison. And you, and you're absolutely right. It was ten times worse there than any experience I had in any of the, you know, level four prisons which I've you know been through. In California, most of them. Which is absolutely in, like ass backwards and insane and terrifying to me. Yeah, it, it really is for a kid. You know, when you have a 25-year-old or 18-year-old and and they're in the shower and there's, you know, I almost got raped a couple times by three black dudes that were holding me down, literally holding me down in the shower. And I had to like, I it was all I could take to reach Pull my pull his calf over to me and literally bite a chunk out of it until and, ma- and he screamed bloody Mary and then the cops came in you know but like couple of close calls like that I fortunately and- it never happened in there but it, it all the way but it definitely was attempted many times so we had these clicks and we, and you had to you know be accepted in order to have a certain level of respect in there and for me I kind of got caught up with. What what started it for me was I got caught up with a Mexican guy that we were playing cards. We played spades a lot and and we talked a lot and he was a gambler and I and I obviously you know became this like I was able to play cards and I and I saw that there was money to be made there even if it was just little. It was a good way to pass the time. And um, I watched him. He became a friend. His name was Crow from Escondido, Escoviejos, and and he was an older guy, but he was cool. He was a cool dude. Older, older o- guy. O- yeah. So I'm like 13. He's like 18. Okay. Right? Okay. So he's you know, but he gets caught up in a, in a mix with the Mexicans, his own his own race, and I watched them like you know shun him and put him on this leva. It's called where he's on the level, which means. He's like no respect. He can get spit on, punched on at any time, and he can't do anything about it or everybody's going to mess him up. He has to just take it. Like that's just part of his thing. Well, one day I'm watching him, like I watched these guys, you know, go from our dorm. There was honor rooms. There was like 13 honor rooms, right? And uh, and then there's a dorm, and I watched these guys like put these little, you know, their T-shirts around their face, and three of them go into his cell, and they start fighting. You know, he started, they beat him up while he's sleeping. And I choose, he's, from the time I'm young, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a loyal friend, right? And yeah. I run in there to help him because he's screaming bloody murder, you know? Yeah. So I go in there to help him and make the biggest, single biggest mistake of my life <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> by getting involved in the Mexican's business yeah. and helping this guy who's already on the level. Yeah. So now I've put myself into the worst possible predicament I can be in. This is the single worst decision you've made in your life? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? At the time, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Like it, it, it you know, it, it was the worst and probably the best because okay. it put me in a position where now at night I'm sleeping on my bunk 
you know, there's bunk beds and then there's single beds. And like the single beds were more for like the younger, new, you know. So they're right in front of the the cop's cage where he can look out and kind of see everything in these single beds right here. Well, I wake up one night and this is what they like to do. So they like to drink Folgers coffee, put their T-shirt, wrap it up around their face so that it's like a, a band and then put a bunch of AA batteries in a sock three of them, and then wake me up with those, just pounding me on the head as I'm asleep. And so I'd wake up. I remember waking up and then getting hit again and getting knocked out. And then when I come to again, I'm in the infirmary. And uh, But I remembered one dude's face, right? And uh, I don't know, I, I see him there because they've got him, like, arrested, if you will. And I run after him and I just start, you know, beating yeah. the hell out of this guy. And, um, and that made it worse for me. Right. Well, oh, God. well then, um, I'm, I'm at my bed, I get my store and at 13 years old, I, I was smoking marble reds. Like they sold them in there in the canteen. Yeah. Right. So you could smoke in there if you were, yeah. it's weird you, out here. Yeah. You couldn't, but in yeah. there you could smoke yeah. 13, 14, 15, 16, yeah. like that's just kind of the part of the, they, part they of the gave thing. up on you guys. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're making money off, yeah, exactly. us, off our parents. Yeah. Right? So, like, all right, just let them smoke. So I, I remember getting my store, my canteen. I put two bags on my bed, and, uh, you know, this was the first time I was able to get something that, like, you look forward to being able to mm-hmm. get your store bag, coffee, soups, cookies, whatever, something other than the state food that they give you. And um, and I started to learn what being, you know, like the manipulative game of life, you know, in the streets. So I was told right when I put them on my bed, they're like some Mexican guy comes up to me. He's like, Hey man, the cops calling you right there. They've been calling you. you. You better run up there. So like an ignorant dummy kid, I run up there and the cop, I'm like, Hey man, you guys were calling me. What's up? You know, I'm standing there for a second. He's like, we didn't call you. And he's looking at me like, Oh God, like you just got took, you know, now that I look back and I remember that yeah. I go back to my bed. Those, those bags are gone. Time. And, uh, I have to ask the only other white guy on my unit, Doug Sager. He was older. He had a job. I'm like, so what do I do, man? Like, there's 40 seats over here in the day room, you know, with a Spanish station, right? Okay. So that only the 40 border <laughs> brothers that don't speak English right. are here. Then you have 40 seats over here with Sudeño, Southerners yeah. that are gangster Mexicans that are American, right? Yeah. Cholos, if you will, whatever you want to call them. And that's an American TV. And then, and they got their backs against the walls, you know, and then up in the front, you have like nine bloods and then seven or eight crips, I remember, each with their own rows. And then the two seats for the white guys are in the middle and there's no like TV, right? So we got to like, you know, figure out yeah. what, what what we're doing. But we're like literally in the middle of this whole day room. And I remember asking him like, so, you know, all right, what am I supposed to do? Because there's serious rules. Like you, if you smoke a camel... And you pass it to somebody, the non-filtered, right? Yeah. Before you burn the camel, like you're gonna get the shit kicked out of you. It's it was like serious, like pol- stupid politics. Wait, if you so like what? What's so we're sitting here, we're smoking a camel yeah. non-filter, and non-filter, I'm smoking okay. it, and I pass it to you or somebody else, you know, yeah, Mexican is- or white, because we did, you know, yeah. hang out with the Mexicans. If you were, you know, okay, yeah, but. uh because nobody put me on the level or level, yeah. right? Because I only had one other white guy. Yes. I just put myself in the mix with these guys. Yeah. They couldn't actually classify me because I wasn't their race. But if you pass that cigarette, 
before you burn the camel, that was like a rule. If you drop oh, the like soap, the camel. yeah, the little camel letters on there, you know, the C A M E L on oh on the camel on. Just little things like that. You drop the soap. You don't do, you know, and you pick it up and you use it. You drop something. Like people are watching and they're looking for a reason to just, you know, have three guys come beat you up. But um, And the Mexicans had a heyday beating, you know, picking on us all the time because we didn't have – I wasn't at a point where we were policing our own yet, which I learned way later. But I remember him telling me, he's like, look, you know, you got to just, you know, there's nothing you can really do about it. Like you're, what you're supposed to do is this, but I don't, I don't recommend it. He's like, you're supposed to go around to each person in the day room one by one and tell them if you went in my locker, you throw a fuck is what they called it. You throw a fuck. If you went in my locker and you stole my stuff or you went on my bed and stole my stuff, you're set. Your dad, homeboys, F your, you know, Vario, F your mother, F if you don't run up, if you don't like come handle this right now, because now I'm disrespecting you, forcing you by disrespecting you with, you know, all those Fs to your life to, to come and beat me up. And that's how I'll know which person did it, because I've disrespected every single person in there if they took my back. If they didn't, then they wouldn't have to answer to it. But the Mexicans look, took this as a sign of disrespect, not only because me being always the addict alcoholic, like I couldn't wait. Like I went around because I, I said, all right, cool. You then did I'll it? do that. So I did that to oh, every geez. single person, black. Seriously? You know, yeah. In the day room. <laughs> and I remember the cop in there just going, this kid is going to die. Like he's just they poor thing. Like first he gets, yeah. like, he's just, he's, he's not having a good, a good so, life. So like. So nobody reacted except the... No, nobody reacted right away. So I needed it right away. I went back. I remember going back. <laughs> oh, my God. To my... Uh, so and I'm like, so now what do I do? That's what I told him. And he's like... So, so no one reacts. And yeah, like, no. Nobody like, said anything. I mean, they're looking at me like, I'm going to kill you, mm-hmm. you know, like you little punk. But yeah. I go back to my uh, my the guy and he's like, now you just got to wait. He goes, but... It's not going to be good, you know? So <laughs> guys like, I'm like, I don't want to wait anymore. Yeah. So I go back into the dorm and I start going through all of the lockers. Now, the people that have locks are people that are afraid. They don't have respect. They're afraid that somebody can go into their locker. The Mexicans, as many as I told you there were, they don't have locks in their locker because you better not go in their locker. Right. Well, I went through every locker in there. Until I found the barbecue bag of chips, I remember, carton of Marlboro's. And I pulled, when I found it and I knew it was mine, like I took that stuff out and I put it in my locker. And now I've asked for, now not only did I disrespect everybody, but I then just, you know, if if insult to injury was anything, it was me going in their locker as well because nobody goes in there. So I'm like, I don't care. I got my stuff back that my mom bought me. You know what I mean? Like, so this is mine. And I was so, like, emotional about it. Like, I cried. I remember crying and crying and crying. I'm, like, telling the cop, but my mom bought me that, blah, blah, blah. And um, Did the cops, like, have any? There was, it was so, it's like there's two people, two cops on for, for, you know, 90 people in this place, you know, and then at night there's like one in a secure cage watching all these people, you know, sleep at night. Right. So. Sounds safe. It, it, yeah. And that's kind of where, you know, all, so many, like I'd be in the bathroom and all of a sudden, you know, they call it getting bombed on. Like I got bombed on playing cards where somebody just runs up and hits you in the side of the head. Right. 
And then they just all start beating the shit out of you, right? So that happened for, that happened a lot. And um, it's a wonder that I'm, you know, still have a semi-functioning brain, seriously. But at one point, I'm sitting out in front of the admin center. I was like, I had a job like picking up cigarette butts, you know, in front of the the staffing office, you know, and uh, program administration. And I remember this, I'm sitting on the curb and I got my, you know, I'm just like, I'm crying. I cried a lot, right, at that point. And I'm sitting there just crying like, man, I, you know, this is, I can't do this. Like everywhere I go, I'm just constantly getting beat up, you know. And I see this tractor coming my way and I recognize that the guy's got a blue shirt on, a blue, you know, our count the, the, the blue, prison blues and blue jeans. And he's a Samoan and Mexican guy. And um, and he pulls up and he's like, "What's going on, youngster?" And uh, I'm like, "I'm glad you asked." And I start telling him everything going on. He's I'm like, like uh, "It's like my first, the first time I'm like not in front of a bunch of people. Yeah. We're sitting over here. This guy's on the tractor. He he's from YTS Chino. He's on a job where he he works here, but he goes back there YTS to the adult, you know, right. pr- uh, eighteen to twenty six or twenty five. Uh, unit and you know and he starts to you know I tell him everything you know I'm like this is what this, I'm just tired of this happening to me like I can't you know do this anymore so he tells me you know I'm gonna tell you what to do to fix this if you do what I tell you this will stop I'm like I'm all ears like just tell me what to do like dude yeah. told me go to like tell me what to do so he's like the next time anybody comes at you messes with you says something looks at you wrong you need to i don't care if you get a rock if you take a broom and sharpen it if you put a soap in a sock if you you know put rocks in a sock you need to go to that person and you need to smash him so loud you need to make sure every single person in this prison and in every other prison around you and in every neighborhood house hears the echo of you you know, metaphorically, he's saying, just make sure everybody knows. And he goes, you do that once. But what if it's three people? And he said, just overdo it. He says, yeah. like, do what you have to do to make sure that you almost kill this person. If You know what I mean? Like, he's just like, he's saying, if you say it loud, as loud as you possibly can, it'll start to stop. And then the next time something happens, do it again. Like, don't just try to fight people. Sharpen something, stab them. Stab them right in the stomach, right? As hard, as many times as you can. Don't just stab them once and run away. Like, stay there and keep stabbing them until the cop comes. And he said, when you start doing that, everything will stop. And people will respect you. And they will leave you alone. So I was like, okay. <laughs> if that's what I got to do. Like, I'm going through hell. Yeah. And I have no problem with these bloods and cribs and these right, Mexicans. They just torment me every day. Like, I'm standing in line. I'm getting kicked and hit and spit on while, while we're in line. And, and nobody's... you know admitting to who it was they're like laughing i'm like but at 14 years old i started doing that you know and uh and it became a habit every time somebody disrespected me like it wasn't just a one-time thing it was like every single time you cross the line with me this is what's going to happen to you to make sure i never have that feeling again and um so that's what i learned at 14 years old how fast did that work Pretty quick. I caught, yeah, I caught a lot of times. So the three years, like I would, 18 months as a first time offender in there is what I would have done. I wound up doing three and a half, yeah. actually three yeah. and a half. Yeah. And, um, and that carried. So yeah. then I got out, I was out for six months. At what age? At 16. 
And this is when I was the only time I went to high school. So not in San Diego, but my parents said, let's, you know, he's getting out. Maybe let's move to San Francisco. Let's get away from everybody in San Diego and see if this will, you know, this will help. Yeah, that's a reasonable. So I get out. I, you know, when I first started, there's a, a joke because I don't lift weights, but when I first started lifting weights in there, all I did, like I knew Popeye, <laughs> I didn't have, I didn't have anybody else to say, Hey, this is how you work out. So all I did was curl. So like now I have these biceps that I can just think about doing a push up, and you know, I got veins blowing up right there, but I don't do curls. So people are like, dude, you work out? Like, and I train jujitsu. They're like, man, how much do you lift? I'm like, I don't lift weights. So, yeah. I mean, I do for my legs. I do, but, um, so my biceps were overdeveloped at this time, right? But I'm, I'm, and and then you know, towards from the time I, you know, once I got closer to getting released, I started learning. You know, oh, you have to do bench presses, you have to do all these other things. But my point is, at 16 years old, I'm at Millbury High School, and I'm like, my dream. So let me let me back up for a second. Junior high is Korea Junior High in San Diego and Point Loma, and I'm. I'm like a very fast wide receiver football. Um, I'm fast at the time and uh, to the point where I'm going and practicing with a high school football team and kind of trying out for it, you know, and I'm, and I'm really, I can catch the ball and I can run fast and I, you know, and I snap my ankle and I, and I wind up um, like just, just ruined. Like that was my dream. So now I'm like drinking a lot more and I'm, and you know, and doing drugs and uh and just that was it that was I was done so at 16 years old I'm in Millbrae and I and I and I I'm like okay this is like this is high school this is what everybody you know what I was you know, what you dream about right like I knew what junior high was like yeah. but I'm like yeah. you know when I want to have a girlfriend yeah. I want to have I, you see these TV shows right they're yep. letter letter jackets yep. all this stuff so I'm like, yeah, you know, this is what I want to do. So I want to play football. I'm mm-hmm. going to high school, but I'm trying out for the football team. So it's late. I'm two weeks, you know, late into the season. But because I'm like developed, yeah, they're like in let a him way try that's out. like there's no other 16 year old that has the same body that I have, yeah. right? So they let me try out, and of course I make the team like with flying colors, and I'm like this all star guy, right? Because we played football in in YA too. So in French okay. and Ellis, we had helmets, pads, everything, and I mean, I. You know, they're like no shivs when I we're got playing. To cra- yeah, no, but you got like you learned how to hit. Like yeah. that was a thing. You're gonna hit, and you're gonna make people like do. Yeah, and you took hits. So yeah. when I got there, they were like, "Yeah, this we're gonna win." Like whatever. <laughs> yeah. But like, who is this guy? You yeah. know, and they called me Mafia Man because I would I had this you know this swag Swagger. this lot this walk where I yeah. you know I had this gangster walk yeah. that was just normal for me. It yeah. was a normal way for me to walk and squat and like this. If you take a mix between a Mexican and a white like gangster from the time they're a kid, I don't know how to explain it, but I'm squatting, I'm walking, I'm like I have this real like convict gangster demeanor demeanor yeah. it's just it's, i just was around it so that's what became me you know and uh i'm playing football and i meet a couple of friends that are my friends to this day these chinese and, Mo- and mongolian brothers ed and dave chin and along with a lot of other people there that i met but we we wound up very close and it was interesting because we only knew each other for that like six months and we're at a party and we're at Sebastian Park and, and, you know, these two Tongans, you know, they're messing with some girl and I, and I become, you know, I've always been the Captain Save-A-Ho type person, <laughs> if you will. 
So I'm like, I'm going to stick up for them because nobody else is, yeah. you know, is going to stick up for them. And anyways, they, they try to jump me. I pull out a knife. I start stabbing them. I like I do. Right. right. And, and mm-hmm. I, and I go right back to prison. So yeah. now I'm violated and I'm going to go do two years. But these guys are like, Whoa, dude, did you hear what that dude did? Like mafia man, like he stabbed those tongues. Like they're never going to mess with that dude again. But dude, right. that's crazy. Like who does that at 16 years old? Like at a yeah. party, at a high school party, who yeah. does that? Yeah. And he's just like proficient at yeah. it, right? right? Not something he's never done before. Like obviously right. this dude's done this <laughs> many times. So it was just like, they were, they, they were intrigued, my, my buddies. And, and they wrote, you know, it's over the years. So I go back and now I'm in Preston. In in the in uh, Sacramento, and I do two years there, and it's a little bit different now. Now there's a massive amount of whites, right, and blacks and, and Mexicans. And we should stop and just say that the prison system is the only place where you can legally segregate by race. But you have to actually. Right. Well, so but that's what I. So I think that's an important piece is that yeah. many people don't. They don't do that in other states. Oh, they don't. They don't. Only in California. They don't. And I can only speak on California, but I know from federal. I didn't know like, that. Yeah, so a lot of other everywhere. states, there's like in New York, there's blacks, there's Mexicans. I mean, there's blacks and whites that actually are on the same gang or whatever. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, they're Sally's. In California, it's just a trip. I don't know if it's something to do with being so close to Mexico or what it is, but because the because the Mexican mafia runs the prison systems, period, and even the youth authorities, they did. To the point where the, the staff members are heavily, heavily influenced by their cousins, nieces, brothers, whoever that is, you know, potentially at risk if they don't play ball in prison. Bring cell phones, bring dope, bring whatever. Look the other way, right? So they have complete yeah. control. It's crazy. That's the part that's scary. But, but, but you have to segregate. Yeah, you have to segregate because otherwise, you know, there's I mean, it's and it's a reason it's a way for the the cops to kind of like manage right, manage the violence effectively and have, you know, if a white does something, you know, and it keeps them kind of Yeah. But also it's a survival for the inmates and convicts is to stick together. And it all started basically with, you know, with white guys getting raped. You know, that's how the Aryan Brotherhood started. I mean, I don't want to start talking about organizations because it's... No, but I mean, I think it's an... The reason I bring it up is that when you're talking about it, and I know this from my, you know, my exposure, but when you're talking about it, you're talking very much in a racial terms, and that is not a outside of prison norm. People... (laughs) <laughs> like, you know, I yeah. like most people don't say, oh, my my Tongan and Chinese friend, my black friend, my this friend. Yeah, like I just say Jessica true. or Sally. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I yeah, like it's just true. not something that it's not I'm not going to identify every person. Right? right. Like I just my best friend Serena, you know, whatever. Like and I think it's an important thing to say that this is very, very vital to survival. And for the record, I don't talk like that today, no, right? right? <laughs> no, Unless I Unless I'm getting away from my meetings yeah. too much. And then my girl's <laughs> right. like, have you been to a meeting? I'm right. like, why? Because yeah. well, you're categorizing people yeah. on the yeah. freeway. And yeah, exactly. Road. You don't right. do that. Right, right. So, <clears throat> so but I'm I mean, like, that's... Oh, maybe I need a meeting. I mean, so. number that, but that's actually an interesting piece of it is that part of your recovery has been moving away from those categories. Yes. And I, and I, just, I just bring that up just because I think many people have no exposure to the stuff we're talking about. And so from the un 
exposed ear. It's, it sounds racist. And and yeah. and what people need to understand is that it's not. And and in the sense that this is a survival mechanism. Yeah. And the other piece to it is what happens to people and what, what I'm thinking about and what I've seen. I've worked in the DA's office and I've had um, – I didn't end up at CYA, but I dated plenty of people that did. And what happens is that in order to survive – you have to commit more crimes, which give you more time, which yep. force you to survive in more time. And this is this is the if you want to live in peace, if you want or to live in, in more peace, yeah, or not, you know, I mean, I mean, would. there's, I think, I think that the option of being raped or living in peace, those are kind of that's a yeah. that's a very wide yeah. range. Like we're not talking about like fighting every three weeks and living in complete peace. We're talking about outright everyday extreme violence or you know, or this level of like, nobody messes with me. And I think, again, and I've talked about this before, you don't know what you're capable of until you're put in these these survival situations where that piece of you has to come out and make these types of decisions. And most of us have never had to make that type of decision on a regular basis, let alone year after year after year. And that is why it is so remarkable that you are who you are today given how much how programmed you were from such from such a young age that this was you know the these categories and that so anyway i just wanted to hop in and say that as we're talking about it because i think it's a really important piece like this is the requirement in order to survive no and it's and i'm glad you did that because it's it is important and i and i and i find that you know for many i mean there's been so many prison movies over the right. years, but yeah. none of them are even close to accurate. Like maybe Felon and Shot Caller are probably the two that have come out. Oh, good, because I love the, Shot Caller. Yeah, they're the closest to what it was really like. And they're still like, that's only like 30% of what you see. Like okay. they don't let you see. Felon told you a little bit about what happened when the cops were putting us out and gambling on who was going to, you know, blacks and whites fighting Mexicans when we're supposed to be segregated. Like there right. is no, yeah. you know, so they're putting us in this little handball court <laughs> to see who's, and they're betting. They're up in the tower betting, right? And that's what the movie actually w- was about. And it's true. I'm glad they finally came out with that because that's just a just a glimmer yeah. like, of what went on in there from the time, you know, and it was worse in, in YA. But so, yeah, no, I'm glad you, you brought that up because I, I've struggled with having to, the people that I want, to understand me clearly and that know me, sometimes I've had to, you know, and it's people at work, like I've managed floors now and the convict comes out of me when I feel passionate about something or mm-hmm. strong or I feel like you have betrayed me. And I'll give you an example. Yeah. Going through prison. So there's, I mean, I can go on and on about different things that happened in, in prison, but for the most part, I think we can get a little bit of a, a, of a, of a gist of that was what it was like day by day. I mean, yeah, when you go in, maybe one part I need to yeah. touch on is you have to not only become a part of your own race and qualify to be somebody that, you know, and why it was called kicking it where you, you know, but in, in, you know, part of the ride, if you will, or part of the, you know, the white race, 
you have to you have to pass certain qualifications like they want to see your paperwork what did you get arrested for like are you a child molester are you a rapist you know and you everybody puts in their work so if there's a rapist or a child molester that's on the yard that didn't show his paperwork or try to show different paperwork or get you know get by doesn't have paperwork quote unquote was a big one what, what does that mean doesn't pa- paperwork just meaning oh well, I didn't I didn't like get, a police report yeah I didn't get my police report or I didn't get my you know, I forget what it's called now, like my form from the P. So the, that shows what you were charged. Right. With. Because r- rapist, child molester, you're out. Yeah. Well, meaning you could, yeah, we, we don't want you to be out. Like we want you to, we want, we want to know so done. we can come stab you to death. Yeah, you're done. That's, that's what we want to know. You're done. Because that's just, that's us cleaning up our side of the street. And when we do that, then the Mexicans respect us. When we don't do that, so the Mexicans and blacks don't respect us. I have to keep my side of the street clean Mm. and if you come in or you're a rat if your paperwork says yeah you know john but you know stated openly in court that you know mark did it or whatever whatever the case may be right like that person's gonna get stabbed you know and and so now that now you're building up the things that the new guys have to go handle to prove themselves Uh, okay so it is important i guess to bring that part up because that you have to do, and I think you and I talked about this a little bit with the post-traumatic stress disorder the, when, when we were talking on the phone that day for two and a half hours. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, not only when you go to war, like when you go to war, you're fighting. Either it's because you know right. they believed that somebody we knew was a good person or a good dude. For us, not good person. I can't say that. <laughs> good person doesn't exist in there. It's good dude. Good dude right. is in there a whole different term right, right that means you've stabbed somebody or you you know you a righteous cause yeah right? you said yeah. what you you yeah. know you've yeah. you've held up the white race yeah. yeah or the mexican you know right like you've handled your business and handling your business there versus handling your business today yeah. for me is a whole different <laughs> like it doesn't right. mean the same thing yeah you know, and um, but it still kind of does, right? You still do what you have to do. Well, it's, and that's it's the just a different line. survival. I mean, handling your business here might be calling, you know, the utility company, and in there, like it's yeah. it's uh, you're calling you the utility company is a way to survive so that you can your credit, blah 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 blah, yeah. and in there, you paying know, your rent paying, is handling your business. Paying, out here. Yeah, yeah, and right. Paying your rent in, in there, there is handling is that's your business. how you sleep. It that's yeah. the equivalent yeah. of keeping your lights, you know, keeping yeah. the lights on for you and yep. making it. So you can sleep on it, you know, alone at night and things like that. I mean, they are. And if you were to send someone to Afghanistan, you know, maybe there's a perimeter check you have to do or whatever. And it's the equivalent of handling. I mean, it makes sense that in each one of these scenarios, there is a different way of of functioning and surviving in life. But what we talked about was post-traumatic stress and, and what you were getting at was when you go to war, you know who the enemy is. Yeah. Like, right. Like, and you know where, and you pretty much know where they are. Right. right. They're on the other side of that line. Right. Right. They're not in a cage <clears> with where you. Where people ask me, you know, sometimes because I got diagnosed when I was fighting life the 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 second time for my third strike when they struck the third strike for the purpose of sentencing, meaning they remove it right. to give you a shot of not being struck out, which is twenty five to life. They did that twice uh, for me, but I went to Doctor Amen and in over here, and they uh, they you know they I. The van brought me here from Sandy, from Vista to off Jamboree where this world-renowned doctor is and he does a spec scan, single photon emission yeah. computer. To, to yeah, computer yeah. This, they're so cool. Yeah. And they, so cool. 
shoots you up with radioisotope, yeah. nuclear radioisotope. Is that the one that makes you really warm? Well, it it just it does. You color? don't really have a feeling, but it just it bonds okay. with light, so they can monitor the activity of the blood flow in your brain. Got it. And I wound up having this be my defense yeah. on why I was you know high speed chase shooting at cops on the seventy eight for sixteen minutes with dope and guns and all that. Like because I'm I got hot spots in my brain, right? Is what it wound up coming down to. But uh, ADHD, PTSD, and OCD, and um, and and verifiable like color copy, cutting edge new evidence that here's the problem. Because in any situation that has to do with the legal system, court, like there was always the mo, like okay, you got to know how to fix this. Like if you want to present the right way, which I learned from parole hearings as a kid, you have to present the problem and you have to present the solution. Mm-hmm. If you can do that and have a a justifiable or logical yeah. solution, your chances are greater that you'll get a more, you know, closer to what you're looking for versus 25 to life, basically. So the topic PTSD. comes up with PTSD that, oh, well, you know, you're not, you know, how you are you a vet? Are you, you know, yeah. I'm just like, no, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a war vet. And then it's like, oh, rolling eyes, like, oh, then you, right away, it's like, then you don't have PTSD. Yeah. It's like, well, actually, you know, when you're fighting war, yeah. Which in prison, like, yeah, I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai and I've done martial arts any chance I could get when I was on the streets because I always wanted to learn how to fight, from, you know, from when I was, you know, in there going through that stuff. So I wanted to be able to take care of myself. So I've always done martial arts. But when you're in prison on the, on the you know, when I walked into state penitentiary when I turned 21 after being out of YTS, you know, two months, now, I'm, you know, I was, I caught a case. I wasn't in state prison two months later, but I caught a case, three counts of robbery robbery with a gun. I had three weeks left to turn myself in on a three-week state of execution. I had a three-week state of execution. Actually, I had five days left to turn myself in, and and I got busted for kidnapping a Department of Corrections officer out of Florence in Arizona. (laughs) So I was fighting 50 to life out there, and that was a damsel in distress that I can get into where the guy had two different social securities, two different driver's licenses, he was a legal alien, he was beating up somebody who's an Aaron brother and his niece and just all kinds of stuff. And I was like, oh, I'll go do it. I, I'll be gone. I'm going to go do three years anyways. They'll never know it was me. I'll go check him and make sure that he gives her a car back and all this. And I wound up on the front page of the newspaper, you know, okay. and that's what they said. Two California men kidnapped Department of Corrections officer out of Florence, made it look like I was a ninja and I, because Florence is a prison. Right. A federal prison. Right. So anyways, but... He was a bad person, and I always thought I was the crusader, like right. the vigilante that right, was going right, to help right. people. So I always thought there was a – I had some part of like, me that is, always wanted to do good and wanted to help the the underdog, whether right. it's a female getting beat up or – because I was the underdog, right? right? So I've always had that. And um, what wound up happening is when I did go to prison, I it was like a walk in the park. Everybody was like, whoa, dude, like you can't do that. We have rules here. You can't walk over to the Mexicans. I'm like, dude, I was just in – federal penitentiary, like holding supermax with this guy who gave me some information to go give the head guy over there. Like he gave me a, a letter, a kite, which is, was a letter to go deliver to these guys. Cause he knew where I was going to go, how he knew I was, there's 34 prisons. You go to the, you know, reception center and then they can send you wherever, how this dude knew I was going to land on Calipatria four yard with the guy's name on the kite, like, Still blows me away to this day, but that's why I say the Mexicans are, uh, you know, very influential and powerful in there and on the streets. But you wind up, so I wound up like just 
they called us YA babies, YA rejects. We were like trouble to the rest of the white race that was already in their kind of in their little program. Right, and they're doing things kind of like, cool, everything's yeah. cool. And we come in like, no, we need to regulate. There's politics involved. Like, you need to handle this. And we need to let you know you need to be as bad as I am if you're or you're nothing. And well, it's, a, it's interesting because it's a— it's, And I've got respect for the Mexicans and blacks, and I know these guys. And you know what I mean? If they, Let me check everybody's paperwork. And oh, my this, God. God but, you, it's, but it's interesting because you're coming from, like, the immature— mindset you're you're taking that's why i said why babies. babies but that's what i mean it makes sense because you've been taught prison life and that was put into a 16 year i mean there's a reason a 16 year old boy has a higher car insurance rate than a 25 year old man and the reason is that they take there's a risk reward situation going on and the 16 year old's going to take a lot higher risks than the 25 year old man believe it or not and so it makes sense that when you're taught prison culture and you're taught it as a teenage boy with a whole group of teenage boys, it's going to get real gnarly. As you get older, you probably don't want to fight as much when you're in prison, right? Like you, yeah. as you age, it they hurts more. Well, they don't want to fight. They, yeah. You don't fight in there. That's what I was getting at. Is yeah. You don't fight. You just, they just, you, you have a shank and you stab. Right, that's what I mean. Because no one wants to hit there each other. There is no fist fighting. Yeah. Like that's like, that's, yeah. that doesn't happen. Yeah, that's painful. When something jumps off, let's say it's just two people fighting, yard down. Mm -hmm. So when they yell that and the siren goes off, you're supposed to be on your belly, face down, in the dirt. It doesn't matter where you are. Like you lay down right there or you're subject to get shot, <laughs> period. From the tower. Yes. And, End of discussion. And they, and they shoot with rubber bullets? They shoot rubber bullets. Yeah. yeah. And then the uh, cops will come running, they break it up, they spray, they, you know, whatever, they'll beat you up <laughs> to break it up if they need to. So when that's just two people fighting, when you have a riot going on, now you've got 60 people stabbing each other, oh my God. <clears throat> swinging and stabbing each other because now they're fighting and, and, yeah. and stabbing. Not everybody has a knife or wants to bring out a knife because they don't want to risk right. another you know, sentence, another sentence, which is a third strike. So it's very scary, like very scary when you're being told you have three years to do. You've got a year and a half left and your number's up. You need to go stab this dude or you're going to get beat up and you're going to wind up or stabbed and you're going to wind up in the PCR, protective custody yard, where you're no longer respected by anybody. You're a piece of shit. You're a rat, child molester, rapist, and you're going to be in there with all of them. That's basically where you're at. So you have a choice. You can live that way, which if you think you might come back to prison, that's probably not the best route for you. Or you can go stab this guy. What that if you is can you choose to get beaten up instead of like? Can you be like, oh, I'll just take a beating? No, no, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Yeah, okay. you're going to get stabbed. Like you're going to get the same thing that person gets. If you don't do it, you get the same person that that person has coming to them right. coming because you're not upholding, you know, right, the white race, right? You're not like taking. You're not handling your business for us. So that means we wouldn't be able to trust you in a riot because you're going to lay down. You're not going to do anything, and it seriously is logical in there it totally makes sense when you're in that situation out here you and i sitting here right now it makes no sense at all it's like an animal caveman world that is primitive of just it's insane but when you're in there it's a whole different ballgame like you were saying earlier you're not you don't know what you're capable of so you know until you're in that situation so that is a psychological you know program as well that gets downloaded if you will, that does go and apply to other things in life too, right? But for that person's experiences. But when you're 
you know, when you're on the yard and you have a riot going on and you're told by your own people, if you lay down, like before we're done, you're going to get, you know, stabbed too. Like you need to go until we need to be the only one standing, last man standing, if you will, and all that trauma that comes with that phrase. And, in and then there. the other group of people told the same thing. Yeah, they're told the same thing. So you go and there's shots being fired and you now, so that's where the PTSD and comes in, right? Really so bad? now you're fighting with the, your enemy on, on in front of you and you have to be weary of a bullet hitting you from behind, you know? Above. From above, yeah. Which so, is even worse. And I don't, I mean, rubber bullets and shotgun blasts that are like wooden bricks too, like those things, they're just as bad as bullets sometimes. I got shot in the knee. My knees are still jacked up to this day. But so that was kind of the PTSD moment I was going to yeah. describe to you is like, not only am I fighting that person who's, who could stab me in the heart, as you can see, I can get very animated and, and passionate when I'm talking about explaining why I am the way I am to the world and why they need to understand why other people are the way they are is my main like purpose of always wanting to, you know, elaborate on these kinds of things because they're not elaborated on enough. They're not brought up in life. People don't, you know, people get out of prison. We talked about this, this the con in contrast to being an addict, an alcoholic who's been just in a comatose for 10 years of just drugs and alcohol and needles and whatever, they have no concept of what reality looks like. If you've been in prison for five years, you have no concept of what reality looks like out here. You don't know who Google is. You don't know where he lives. You don't know how to get a license. You don't know how to do anything that every other person in society would expect you to know. They expect you to know. It's like you, you, you have to know how to pay So what were some of the things that you came out and you didn't know? Just Google. Did you know Google? Yeah, no, I had to learn all of that. I had no idea about about that. You know, like Google it. Like, who the hell is Google? What are you talking about, dude? Like, you know, but just simple things like getting a job. This anything that an a alcoholic that's or addict that's coming out of a treatment center who's been just on the streets running in hotels and doing whatever. Like, they've never showed up to a job. Yeah. For ten years, they don't know. You know what kind of etiquette you have to have verbally in a workplace, like what's proper, what's not. Right. I was always the the manipulator and I always knew how to look for who, what was the path that was going to get me what I wanted. And in that game, it was power. It was influence. It was respect. So who was running the prisons, the Mexicans? I quickly had a, a class with a guy that was, uh, so I'll give you just a kind of a, an experience in, in, in when I'm fighting that life case for 28 months in Florence, uh, in Yuma, Arizona. How old are you? I'm 21. 21. Okay. So yeah, it was out two months. I got three counts of armed robbery with a gun out of Riverside, which was somebody that was, we thought was going to rob us. And I thought they were pulling out a gun. Like, you know, sometimes I wonder, was I just, you know, like, a, was I delusional, but it checks out today. Like it, I probably wasn't like I did think they were going to rob us and they you know and I got out of the car and I pulled the gun before I thought they pulled were going to pull yeah. the gun and these guys threw all their wallets down and then the idiot Mexicans that are in the car with me they're Indian my one of my best friends rest in peace who died from alcoholism in a wheelchair he he was Indian and these were his cousins so they get out of the car and they grab the wallets and get back in and now we're you know now I'm the one that's holding the gun to this guy's head 
and a light shines on me from behind, and it's a cop like watching me put with a gun to this guy's head, and I'm just like, oh god, let's go as we get in the car. But it totally was not how it was supposed to go down, and right. that's the story of my life. Like right. the kidnapping, you know, in Arizona, just everything, you know, because I was constantly, I'll always like. I had my own perception of what was right and what was wrong. And I was trying to do that from a drunken meth induced, you know, state that was only to serve the purpose of getting rid of that feeling that I always had in my chest, not to disillusion me from, you know, life and reality. But sitting in there, you know, I'm in a 12 man tank, which is supermax, single man cells. There's about eight people in there. And these are all like very high profile criminals, right? So one's a Mexican mafia, one guy's a black gorilla family, uh, which is a black, you know, race, black gang organization in prison. And, um, you know, then there's some other Mexicans that are pretty high power, like murderers, robbers. And I'm in here because I kidnapped a cop. So the kidnapping gets you right up there, right? So now I'm sitting in here and I remember this big, just this guy was walking one day through the the day room down there where there's like three tables. And like I said, there's only eight of us in a 12-man Supermax tank. Uh, they felt like that was enough in there to manage. And um, so we live in there. They open up the cells and we live in there. Just read newspaper, there's TV, and we're waiting to go to our sentence, whatever, we're going to court. And this guy's walking around in the, the day room like yelling, like, who's got the paper? I remember waking up. Like he's like, who's got the paper? And he's and he's like, just really wants this newspaper. Like, <laughs> yeah. So finally, after like going on and on, and all of a sudden, I hear this guy go, "I do," and he slaps his chest. "I do," and he's s- sitting on the rail up on the second floor. And I look up, and it's this like skinny, <laughs> little tattooed Mexican guy that's like fifty years old, right? And he goes, I do, and slaps his chest, and he looks at the black dude finally like eye to eye, and the black guy looks at him and almost looks like he'd seen a ghost and just shuts up and just like goes in his cell, and I'm like, who the hell is that dude? Like, that was interesting. So then I kind of start making my way to talk to this guy over the next couple of days. I'm like, hey, can you, you know, you need anything? You want me to help you with that paper? Making <laughs> jokes. <laughs> like, and, uh, uh, you know, if you ever need anything, if this guy decides to come up here, you know, yeah. you're my neighbor. You know, he yeah. was. I'm yeah. like, he was reading the Bible, you know, and where, where, and why you couldn't have a Bible, like that was a no-no. Huh. And you couldn't have it in a state p- prison because that was a no-no. Why? Really? Because that might make you not want to go stab the person we need you to stab. Oh, but the prison isn't the one not. No. Right. Oh, okay, okay. No, the prison will give you a Bible, okay. all long NAA books. Yeah, but yeah. Okay. Your, okay. Your, 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 your race is not going to. Okay. You know, that's, that's a good reason to get the shit kicked out of you, right? Okay. Like, it's yeah, because yeah. Because you got a Bible in your Right. Room, so you know? this guy's. Oh, you're getting soft on us? Yeah. That kind of thing. Okay. So sick, sick. But he was reading the Bible. So I was like, you're allowed to read the Bible, right? Because I'm 21. I'm still just a puppy. Like, I have no. You know, no idea what, and I haven't been to prison yet. So I only, I only did YA. And at this point now, I'm, I'm waiting to go to the next promotion. And um, I start talking with him, and he's like reading the Bible. He's like, yeah, I read Proverbs every day. A lot of wisdom, and, and you know, and this, and he's got this, like, you know, that essay convict, yeah. old Mexican type, you know, that I took to, you know, because I was used to that. And I start telling him all about YA and my experience and we talk and I'm like, what's it like in prison? And, 
And uh, and he's like, you know, I can tell you're you're good people, you know, like like we talked about what good people mm -hmm, means, right? Mm -hmm. And he explained to me everything about the Mexican mafia and how he doesn't have to worry about that dude. And, you know, he wants me to take care of a few things when I get there because he feels like I, he can trust me more than even those guys that were down below that were in there for like some ridiculous, like, like heinous crimes, right? So you could be like somebody that chopped someone up and threw them in a bag and you're, you're, but you're cool. But the person that's, you know, like raping people is he needs to be dealt with and dead, which I always found like. I have Sellies that would come in. Selly is a roommate yeah. in prison, right? And the guy's like explaining to me how he chopped up his parents and put them in separate bags. And the thing that made him like kind of frustrated with himself was that the second bag he dropped out the window missed the dumpster. Like, how could he miss? This is what was, right? Like, he was like, I could not believe I missed. And then it busted open. And I had to go clean it. Like, and I'm like, dude. What do you say to that? You, you're out of my cell right now. Like, I'm not sleeping in here. Oh, with you? This dude. Oh. oh, yeah. No, yeah. I couldn't. I'm like, hey, this dude, love you, bro. Cool. Got all the respect in the world. You're not sleeping in the cell with me. Yeah. Period. I'm not going to sleep in here with you. Yeah. I don't know what you're going to do with that pencil. I told the cop, I'm like, if you don't move this dude, they're like, you can't just move. I said, I'll tell you what, if you don't move him out of here now, he's going to come out of here in a body bag. The second the door opens, I'll roll him out of here. Like, I'm not going to sleep with this dude in here. So... Do whatever you got to do. Yeah. And I wound up as a single man cell most of my life in there, which I was totally okay with. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. And I and I would read Proverbs every day. Like that was – I held on to that for the rest of my life in prison. Like I would read it every morning even though I was supposed to have a Bible. When I got to che uh, state prison and I had Poncho's kites with me and I got kind of like blessed with his – okay that I was a good dude and anything I needed, like no matter what it was, like take care of him. And I right away had access to like the heroin, coke, speed that was in there, uh, food, power, influence, like favors. And right away, like I started, I had already learned how to speak fluent Spanish from okay. all the Mexicans in the youth authorities. Like literally, like that's all they talked Spanish. about. Full on, I mean, fluid street Spanish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? but and then I'd ask my mom things here and yeah. there. Oh God, that brings up one thing I always want to talk about that trumps everything else. So I can pause on everything else. Like my mother would go from for those of us that have been in youth authority and prison, like we don't and we act like so. This whole thing is about me being a victim. Basically, is what it's what the story would be, right? Kind of, to a certain degree. I was a kid. I was in prison. Right. All these things are happening to me. My mother would get in the car from San Diego and drive. She'd get up at 3 a.m., be in the car by 4, drive to Sacramento, you know, nine hours to get, you know, stand in line. However, maybe she got up earlier than that. I don't know. But she'd stand in line for an hour mm -hmm. to then come in and spend 45 minutes with me, you know, eating a sandwich out of a vending machine, you know, and she did that every Saturday, sometimes Sundays, but every Saturday for years and years and years and years, like all through my, because again, she had no idea why I was in prison now. Like she had no idea why I left, why I ran away as a kid. And now here I am being, you know, going through this crap, which she heard, you know, she, she would get some of it. Cause I, I would, you can only tell them on the phone so much, you know, yeah. but they're like, oh my God, my poor, you know, kid, you know, but, and I manipulated her a lot. Like 
those visits were the most important thing to me that got me us it gave me a glimmer of the outside world and because you get so lost in this dark dreary like it's almost like a movie like you're just you're so lost in there you don't and I learned when I had girlfriends, like people, oh, you're going to wait for me? Like, I would just tell them straight up, like, have a good life. I know, go get laid all you can. Like, I don't, I'm not going to be calling you. I'm not going to be writing you. I'm not going to wait for you to write me. I'm not going to, I don't want you to come visit me. Like, none of that. I'm focused. I knew I had to focus on this in here. Yeah. I wasn't going to be stressed out on somebody else out there. Like, I see everybody else doing, like, oh, she left me when I get out. Um, you know, this guy's in there with my daughter and, you know, this new guy and I'm going to go out and I'm going to kill him. I'm gonna say, I need you to do me a favor. You're getting out next week. Like, oh God. I'm like, I don't want to live like that, you know? So, but she would like go every, from the time I was 13 years old, dude, it's crazy. Like I, I, hands down, the reason I'm here today and the person that I am is, 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 a, you know, she has a lot to do with, you know, yeah. and her prayers and her devotion to staying through all those years and being, you know, a, a loyal, you know, friend of God. I call her Moses' sister. Like her <laughs> prayers have got me out of, I don't know what else could have, but those, like the victim that we play as convicts and alcoholics and addicts, basically, that have to do with it. When, they talk, when, when we're talking about prison, like for the mothers that have yeah. gone just like their kids were in there too, you know, and their their mothers like every other mother, and they're just they're traveling like they want to be there with their son, or the stepdad, or the brother that is the parents because the parents are dead, like all those people that have come to offer some form of comfort to that world that we were in, and they knew we were in, like they don't get enough credit credit at all. It's it's it's, it's interesting when you talk about it. It's like how amazing that she did that and. And from a perspective of being a mom, like, I, to me, it's, yeah, like, that. that's what, it, like, to me, that is what you do. That's what you would that's, do. Yeah, like, that's, it, it It doesn't feel, not that it isn't extraordinary, but it, I, I totally get it in the yeah. sense that, like, that's the only way she could be a part of your life. Right. And so, like, that's it. That, that is raising your son, right? It's, she's raising you during those 45-minute visits. And, you know, when you're a mom, you do, it's funny, I was talking to my husband about it and we were talking about something and, and, uh, he was like, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. And I looked at him and I said, you do understand that any decision that I'm talking about, like I would do absolutely anything for our children. So if I'm coming and telling you like something, you need to pay attention to this, that it's coming from the place of like willing to lay down in front I'm of the bus. I'm just laughing because I'm just thinking of you. I'm like, yeah, I can see how. Oh, yeah. I don't fuck around. It's serious. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You better listen. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> but, but on the flip side of that, I do, I like, I do let him make a lot of decisions that I, you know, whatever that I'm like, oh. but because because well, when, cater, when I cater to our ego, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, yeah. But when I say that. jump, we jump. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, that's just it. the way. Yeah. But, um, I, but yeah. I get like, you know, with your, with, I think that's the piece and it's the, it's my this, love's the same way. She does the yeah, same thing. She's yeah, catered yeah. to my ego. Yeah. But and then when she's serious. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wait. We're serious. Stop, stop the play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, Mom, exactly. Mama? Exactly. Boss. Yeah. yeah. So talk to me about addiction in prison. Like, yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, and I, I look at it like, you know, what I've learned now with alcoholism just being a word that describes my condition, not anything to do with alcohol, right? So, like I said, hindsight being twenty twenty, looking back, in prison, for me, I would be sober in prison for 
15, 18 of those years that I talked about because it was the right thing to do. And I felt better that way. Like I was either a drug addict or I was the one that was going to be trusted with the sack to sell it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and if I'm going to play this game, like I would tell other people, I didn't follow this rule, but I would tell other people like, don't gamble. When you come in, like the the youngsters that would come in, they're like terrified. Like, dude, you're going to be okay. Or the ones that were going to prison when I was out, I was just like, don't lie or make promises that you can't keep. So for that, all intents and purposes, don't make promises. <laughs> don't gamble. Don't gamble. And don't do drugs. Okay. You know? And uh, I did all three, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, <laughs> that's how you learned that lesson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I was, but see, I was able to, you know, I always had the gift to gab and I was always able to kind of, you know, manipulate. And, and I was like, a, I'm like a chameleon to tell you the truth. Like, I, I, I I liken myself to a chameleon. You have, yeah. I can. That's how you survive. Be, I'm leaving the meeting tomorrow at the Canyon Club in front of the Canyon Club crew, and I did 45 minutes speaking for a bunch of bikers in Redondo Beach. You know, and 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 the and the 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 speech was different, yeah. like night and day yeah. to both. And then I, you know, go to treatment centers and talk yeah. to people who are drug addicts, so that are like in their drug addiction, like they're leaving the room to go to the bathroom and do a shot in a treatment center that I know they're loaded because I can just see it. But, and I'm giving them all different pieces of my experience for the purpose of getting their attention um, and and getting the message across to them. And I learned very quickly through YA from being around, you know, it's, I don't know how to explain this point, but I was around every walk of life like the different classes and types of human beings that there are and the way that they think and then the way that they respond to certain things, experiences, one reacts this way, the other reacts that way. I became like almost, I can feel people to a certain degree. Like yeah. I can feel exactly and understand them. You call them empath. Like basically that empath and that coupled with my ability to sell <laughs> And manipulate because I was a drug dealer and you dealing with people that are, you know, you're going to die if you don't have this, you know, math done the right way and deliver on time and, you know, make the money that you need to make. So you have to figure out how to, you know, make sure that that comes out okay. And when you start dealing with higher levels of things, like I got, I got blessed in with a couple of organizations in prison white and Mexican that basically gave, I was in the middle of both. I had both. Right. I had influence and I had power and I had trust from both. And I was able to, you know, with the Spanish and the ability to speak Spanish, I was able to live like two worlds where I had the ability to go and get what I needed from the, the Mexican side of life and bring it to the white side for the white side's benefit until it was until they deemed it that it was, you know, I wasn't doing that or whatever. So, so until it wasn't, but it. I didn't. At one point, you joined a, or you were part of the Mexican organization trafficking. I was, I was, I was definitely involved in in Mexican and white politics and drug trafficking from inside to this to the streets from New Sinaloa to Tijuana all the way up to the Bay Area. You know, San Diego, L.A. I, I can tell you pretty much every gang that's in L.A. Um, from Crips, Bloods to Mexicans, and I shouldn't know that. <laughs> uh, San Diego, same thing, Bay Area, and just um, the different people that I've known and the experiences that I've had. You know, 
and been a part of and the bad things that I did and was there for, whether I did it or not, I did do it. I was there. I was, I was a part of it. And uh, that's traumatizing, right? That's yeah. a seriously ruining families and killing people and just, and, and, and killing people because of somebody being killed because somebody right. saw somebody right. killed. Just this, it's uh I don't know. It'll, it'll, it messes you up. I mean, I'm, I'm good today, but I mean, for a long time, like that was another part of the piece that was inside me that had to get numbed by alcohol and drugs. So inside I, I didn't use, I would stay clean. And then when I got out right away, like it was like, go have a drink, like get laid, you know, get some money, get high, get, get some dope and make some money because that's what I knew how to do. And, um, and that was a cycle. So until, until I want to say like two, I think 2005, I don't know when I f had my first threat of be doing life. Cause we would start in County jail and mm -hmm. we would, you know, be fighting typically guys like me would be fighting a case for six months, a year, sometimes longer, you know, two and a half years, 28 months when I was fighting that, uh, kidnapping. So People are coming and going, you know, and there's people on the streets that I know are getting ready to come in at some point because they're on the run. Mm -hmm. So then I would get messages out just like the Mexican, everybody, this is just, this isn't just me. This is, yeah. this is the process. So I'm going to make sure that you actually hear that I need to talk to your boyfriend. <clears throat> I need to get a message to him. So he needs to be at a certain place, a certain time, because I'm going to call collect and uh, and then, or if I know you too, then you're going to relay the information to him and he's going to go get a bunch of dope, stick it up his butt, right? Wrap it up, stick it up his butt. And when he gets busted, he's coming in and he's bringing that to me. They don't, they had us do like, I mean, pretty close to cavity checks when I was in lockdown. Um, yeah. You got to get it up way up Okay. There. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was like. You do cavity checks, you could swallow, but I mean, that's how we hid knives in level four oh. prisons. Like you had to like wrap it with saran wrap and then toilet paper, saran wrap. And then, you know, you can, you can. Yeah. That's, that's high, man. It's, that's... it's, it's that or spend the rest of your life in prison because you got busted with a knife that you had to have. Yeah. So you can do that or it's that or get rid of all that dope you got because they're coming to search all the cells. And if you don't have, you don't want to flush it. You can't flush the knife. Like, that's not going nowhere. And you can't hide it in the mattress. You can't hide. There's nowhere you can hide it. So that's what we did for everybody. And um, so they knew. A lot of lube. They knew they had to bring it in. Take that yeah. out. <laughs> Sometimes you didn't have that. Oh. Sometimes you're just like, check this out, dude. They're coming oh. to your cell right now. <laughs> so you can imagine, like, you got 30 seconds to do something with that or you're and you're you know, you're going to do the rest of your life because you just got busted with yeah, I guess it's a, a knife I guess it's going up in there. prison yeah. on, uh, you know, whatever. It's yeah. a third strike. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. It's going up there. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now that's going on. Guys come in, you know, and I, you know, and I got seven or eight guys that are at some point they're going to come in. Like, and you better be ready. Like, when you're ready to actually turn yourself in tomorrow. Yeah. Right, right. Because the fellas here. need it. We, we answered to that. And um, I answered to it until I was able to, you know, tell people what to do, which I felt was the, you know, for me, I saw the easiest and most peaceful way for me to be able to live is to know that I'm running the show on the yard because other people were idiots. They would get us into a full-fledged blood 
bloody like riot where there's casualties like people are dying people your friend that you sat and ate, ate chow with every night and you played cards with that's your buddy that's not a fighter like he's a good dude he's got a wife and all his kids he's gonna die because you couldn't figure out how to pass the tray to the black dude the right way through the window because you got issues you're trying to prove something to somebody and now everybody's gonna you know so i was like how do I get to the point where I'm the one that's in control of that and I'll make sure that there's peace and diplomatic and when things need to get done. Yeah. I, a lot of times I would have older dudes. Yeah. The white race wants in there, especially today, like they want to pray on their own. They would rather beat you up as another white person than go deal with the Mexican or black person that disrespected me, but I'll go beat up an old man that can't fight to get my stripes and like kick him and, break his ribs and stab him, whatever. So when they had that kind of thing happening, why? Because he's not a skinhead. I I don't want to get into all this stuff, but they, I wasn't okay with that. And so I would, I would put myself in a position where I was in charge. Yeah. And I wasn't the type that was like always hurting my own. Like I made sure we dealt with whatever. And I tried to nip things in the butt with settlements, like good compromises that was fair for everybody. Because I was a salesman. Right. So that coupled with, if you want to test me, you can see what I will do from what I've learned, is gave me the ability to get that position where I was. And uh, and I would, I would. I would send three guys in and be like, okay, dude, you need to make sure that this dude's bleeding and that he goes out. Tell him that this is what's happening, but don't stab him. But you're going to take the knife in there as if you did. And you're going to tell him he's going to act like he did. <laughs> that kind of shit, yeah, you know? Yeah, And really, like, that's just, yeah, I don't want you to stab him. But if we don't do this, like, it's, it's on. But I can't see old man Jerry. Like, I can't do that to the dude. Like, that's not cool. It doesn't, you know, so so I did do that when I could get away with it a lot, you know. And, uh, and when I couldn't, I couldn't. And that's just more, you know, stuff to deal with that you have to swallow and push down. But when I did start using was when I was fighting that case and they came and he, you know, and I had a bunch of heroin come in. And I was like, God, dude, I'm 25. Like I spent all my life in June, like all my teenage years and then terms. And now this is what my life's come to. I'm going to do life like those other guys on the level four year that I love to be on, but I don't because I get to leave. But it's, you know, it's mature there to those standards. And uh, I started like climbing the walls like, I'm going to take a cop hostage. Like, when I go to court, how can I get out of here? Like, anything's better than this. Like, I'm going to figure out how to do this. Like, how do I break out of here? And, uh, you know, tell my mom, please, just don't come back, mom. For a year, please. I love you, you know, but, you know, and she's still, from the time I was 13 still to, to yeah. you know, 38 years old for 36, 31, 20, always there. Always praying. Always, like, you, you know, we'll figure out how to get you home. You know, and uh, I'm like, don't come back for a year. I'm going to do life like this is it, ma. I'm going to do life. That was the second time because I'm like, this is the second time. Now they got me with a gun and high speed chase, attempted disparage on an officer, all kinds of stuff. Right. I mean, they call it shooting. Like if you point it, you're shooting at a cop. Basically, I mean, to a certain degree, basically in court. It's like if it was if it was loaded and it was they're like, you may as well have shot him because it's as far as the charge is concerned. So. I'm like, they're never going to let me out. So just let me process this. Just just come back in a year. I love you. I don't want you to not see me, but I don't want you to keep coming back because it's giving me false hope and it's not working for me. I'm going insane. I need to 
be okay with this. It's going to take me a minute because I'm never getting out. So that's when I started using. And I started to, instead of meth and heroin, uh, booze, I started using heroin. Right. To shut would, it up. Yeah. And there was a time in prison where it was not okay to use needles. There was a time on the streets where, for us, for polit- politically, you know, the, we you couldn't slam. Like, if you smoked out of a glass pipe, like, that was very bad, right? Like, to, you, you, you could only snort it. And then it has, got to the point where... The addicts, the older guys that were yeah, laying the rules, like, started doing yeah, it, and yeah, or it got, became known. Yeah, and 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 that happened with with the inside too. It evolved the same way, and uh, so I would bring needles too, along with we would t- you know have these. Oh, we yeah. we made needles, but we really only needed the tips, and we could make the rest yeah. right out of pens and latex and other stuff. Same way we made tattoo guns, right? So, but during that time, it was like. So, I don't know how to explain it, but I was just like, all the time I had done and every, all the experience I had in doing time couldn't prepare me for me getting ready to do 25 to life. Like, there's, there was no, there's no way to explain how you feel. But, again, the heroin became my best friend. You know, I didn't want to do meth inside. I mean, who, never did. Because yeah. it was like, who Why wants do you to want stay to up up? for three days and yeah. just think about how you got all, yeah. This, <laughs> yeah, that and all these dudes around. Yeah. And like, you can't even, you yeah. know, you're just... You're horny, but you're yeah. not, you know, there's no woman inside. And it's just like, so it made no sense to do that. But yeah. heroin made all the all, sense. Oh, yeah. It oh, was yeah. excellent. It became my best friend and morphine pills and methadone. And, you know, and there was a time in there where I was just like on so much stuff. When, and when we got locked down, I was like so sick uh, oh. that I had to use somebody else's syringe. And, and, I, and I caught some some blood diseases and stuff, and and uh, and and it wasn't wanna, good. Do you want to talk good. about that? I don't. I okay. don't want to get into that. But okay. I did. It, I compromised my health. Let's just say it like that. Okay. And um and and broke my golden rule and um and used somebody else's syringe, which I never did. But I was so like on so much stuff, like a gram a day of heroin, and you know, and I was getting it, and I was still able to manage it. Meaning the yard, like I was still able to get everything sold and make enough extra to to support my habit, which I supplemented with methadone and morphine, and yeah. then that you know. But it, the behavior was there, right? Like, but I had to, I had to function on the yard too. I had to be the yeah. guy that was able to handle things. So it, that's different when you're on the streets where you don't have that. You don't yeah. have that responsibility. But I did, I did, you know, I. Drank all the time, always, I mean, not all the time, but I always was okay with that. Like, we always made booze, and we always drank on the weekends, and, you know, that was always, and smoked weed. I didn't consider that drugs, right? That, to me, never was. It was always just, like, part of it. When you did the heroin or the speed, like, that's where, not only are you facing 16 months extra, but, you know, you got all the other stuff that you're dealing with, with people who are dope fiends in there that are rationalizing in their brain that you owe them for this or whatever the case may be for them to get theirs. Hi, I'm Peter Loeb, CEO and co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery. We're proud to sponsor The Courage to Change, and I hope you find that it's an inspiration. I was inspired to start Lion Rock after my sister lost her own struggle with drugs and alcohol back in 2010. Because we provide care online by live video, Lion Rock clients can get help from the privacy of home. We offer flexible schedules that fit our clients' busy lives. And of course, we're licensed and accredited, and we accept most private health insurance. 
You can find out more about us at lionrockrecovery.com or call us for a free consultation, no commitment, at 800-258-6550. Thank you. So you get out at 39 and you're out for three years. No, so I get out 39. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, you get out. Get out earlier. And I'm, I mean, no, this was in two. This is before that high-speed chase uh, with the attempted disparage when I was, you know, I went Basically, it was just like another term. It wasn't, it was another sentence, only it was a little, lot stricter and more, you know, strenuous as far as how much time I was going to do because I was, I should be doing life. So like if I would have got 15 years, which is what I was expecting, that would be better than doing 25 to life because in 15 years I could get out. Yeah. 25 to life, you're not getting out. You're not getting out. Why did they say 25 then? Well, 25 to life is the third strike law. Like that's what Jerry, whatever, put in place. But now they've changed it to only if it's violent, you know, charges that you have that you'll go, you'll do life. But yeah, talk to me about getting out. Yeah. So the, the, you know, each time that I got out, I always had to start over. Right. And one thing that happened was, you know, when I was engaged to her, I had that business, I had everything. Two things I want to talk about, which is significant during that time, 99, 98, I got out. 99, 2000, 2001, I'm, I'm, I'm in this, the period that I was out for three years, basically. I think I did like one little violation when I got in 98 for like eight months or something. Then I came back out, I was out for three years. In 1998 in Tatchby State Prison, level four out in the mountains, and I've been to Calipatria, Chuckawalla, Lancaster, Bosco, Sentinella, Chino, Pleasant Valley. Like I, I can name them, I don't even, a lot of prisons in Tehachapi up on in the mountains. I had a, uh, I was 28 years old and I had another friend there who was doing life. And I was really like fascinated with his ability to like, he meditated and he had this like aura about him. So I started looking into the stuff that he was doing and, and I, to speed things up, I had this relationship with a guy named Ram Das, Richard Alpert. I, I corresponded with him. He wrote a book called The Only Dance There Is, Be Here Now, Still Here. And he basically was my guru and taught me through correspondence and his books basically how to, because I was somebody that, you know, he had a, the Human Kindness Foundation was something that he was a part of. And he sent in books to help people learn the way of, you know, the seeker on the conscious path. And, uh, and basically I started doing transcendental meditation. Mm-hmm. And uh, got up to like, started at five minutes and over a year's time was at like an hour and a half where oh I would like, be floating over. And when you're in a prison, yeah, it's a lot easier to do. It's totally. like the guy in the cave that's, yeah. you know, across the world and you travel to, you know, hey, old wise man, please yeah. tell me the secret yeah. to life. And yeah, of course he knows. He's not dealing with all the other things. Yeah. Yeah. So I was able to get to that point and literally like leave my body right and yeah. and hover over sunsets on the beach and yeah and uh just different things and i and i became a fly on the wall that day and watched everything that happened to me when i was nine years old it all came back to me and during those two weeks like everything step by step like i saw it visually and i and i knew right away it had happened but that was the first time from the time you remembered that, it it. that i remembered it wow yeah so i had like i think three weeks to a month to get out. I mean, I literally had to stop smoking cigarettes, stop taking these little pills and smoking pot if I wanted to go on this path of consciousness. Right. And I did for that time. And uh, 
and I learned so much that it carries over to my life today, right? As far back as it was. And uh, I strive to spend more time meditating. It's mm-hmm. just like it's, I strive to do it. But um, I'd be a black belt already if I, if I could do that. I mean, hopefully in December I will be anyways. But still, it's taken a long time for me to try to get back to just a five-minute place where I can start to do that again. But I uh, right away... Right away, because I would, like, I I could, the handball was like, it was like I was on LSD frying, you know? I could see tracers of it, like, when I'd get done. And uh, I had the right response to any any question, any situation. It was amazing. And I could, like, I recorded my dreams. I would wake up in the morning. I would write down what I dreamt about. I, like, so I started, I wrote a letter to my parents right away apologizing to my family and to my dad and explaining what happened at nine years old and why I did what I did. And this is the first they heard of it. I'm like, this is why this happened. So, you know, and I didn't know until now, here's how it came about. And, uh, and I got out and it's just a trip how this all kind of happened, but I got out. We had that conversation again, but it was kind of like, you know, Oh, it's very uncomfortable to talk about this, but you know, and I'm with my, girlfriend that one that I was talking about that I feel like was the one that I got away but now I see things differently but I loved her you know then yeah. and and uh and chose to go to war with the hell's angels over staying with her because one of my the business that I had just I'd take her to Hawaii for four days we're supposed to be there we're there two weeks because I fall in love I'd never been there I was like this is great this is amazing I love it here come back my partner burns me for $185,000 and skips out to South Africa my best friend is murdered Right, well, passed away, and then my belief is that at the time that this is what happened. So, and then she leaves me in my mind, but really, I told her like I don't want you to be here because bullets are flying in our house. Like all of a sudden, I went from like just like that, like because these three things happen or those two things happen, and then her all in a two week period was gone, and I was slamming dope and carrying drugs, and that's why when the judge asked me, he said, "Mr. Sanfilippo, you have a business in Carlsbad on State Street." a block away from one of the most beautiful places in the world in Carlsbad. You have a four-bedroom house on a third of an acre. He listed all the vehicles I had legally. He listed the house. He listed the dogs, everything. He's like, what are you doing in a 16-minute high-speed chase on the 78 jeopardizing my community and my officers? Like, it, this doesn't add up. Why would you? What are you doing? You had the perfect life. I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. It's the only thing I could say was I don't know. But, and it was probably the truth. Yeah, I had no idea. But I do know now. I know that I responded and reacted to somebody betraying me, which is I'm going to get to this point now with what happened with uh, with my step-uncle, right? So he, the partner burned me for 185 grand. I turned into the monster that I knew how to be at 16 years old. Yeah. Only I'm not in prison. I'm on the streets with guns, swords, knives crazy stolen vehicle right he's like in a stolen vehicle you're in like you're not even in one of yours like you're in like what the hell dude like what's wrong so it it checked out that i had definitely some issues going on up in my brain so when i get out i go to my parents house they're living in uh in uh cardiff by the sea and uh i'm just smoking weed i meet this girl at my sister's work who's lost now but she i wind up in love with her anyways we're at my house. We leave. My parents says we leave. We go down the stairs in the back. We get in the car. We drive away. We forget my lighter. So we come back in the driveway or in the in the alley. 
She stays in the car. I walk up the stairs to go in and get the lighter. And I see my grandmother sitting in the living room. My parents are in the living room. And this guy is walking in the hallway towards me. He goes, Danny, can, can I talk to you for a minute? <laughs> and I vaguely remember his face. And I'm like, okay, what's up? You know, and I'm like 235 pounds. I was lifting weights. I was like, you know, guys were like, this guy looks like a WWE guy, right? F or whatever you call it, wrestler. And I go um, in the room with him. And uh, that in and of itself is like a scary, nostalgic feeling, right? And I go in there and he's like showing me this AA chip and that he's on his ninth step and he's got like nine years, I think, sober now or something. Or he's doing the, and he's doing his amends step, right? The ninth, ninth step. And uh, he's explaining all this to me. And while he's talking, I'm downloading and processing like everything that happened. I'm like, what the hell? This is a dude. Like, I just learned this, you know. Wait, this is the step? This is the step uncle. Yeah, this is my mom's stepbrother. He's at the house. My grandmother's sitting right there. This is why it's so crazy that after I learned it, I think probably my mom told my grandmother now thinking about it. I don't know what. But um, and so you did when you went into the room with him. Did you know who it was? I, no, I started to process it once while you were I was in there. The room. Yeah, because oh, he starts talking about the you know AA, which I had no knowledge of Alcoholics Anonymous, nor did I give a shit about it. Like, yeah, I, I could care less about a chip or anything yeah. like that. When I realized who he is, the oh, second it clicks, I'm like, hang on a second, stay right here, don't. Don't say anything else. Hold on. And I go out in the hallway and I go into the kitchen. And you know how those wooden blocks. Yeah, yeah, nice. Knives. So I pull out the biggest one. And as I'm walking back in there, he, because I hear my mom like, mijo, no. That's what she always, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Broken record. Mijo, no. Mijo, no. Son, no. Yeah. And he comes out and I put him against the wall right there. And I got the knife to his throat at his ear. And I, you know, I'm like, you think because you come in here with some a chip bullshit. I don't know what the hell you think this is. You're going to come apologize to me after everything that you put me through, what I went through from the, t- and I blamed him for it. Cause I yep. left at nine and like, yep. this was, a, this is this what, was the thing. this is what happens to a lot of people out there. Like yeah. I had no control over this and I had no idea about it yeah. until, I mean, I was just an insane maniac by mm-hmm. anybody's standards until I had that spiritual awakening yeah. with the transcendental meditation right. and the ability to see something that had happened. And I, uh, so I tell him like, you think after everything I went through, like, cause I, at 28 years old, I'd lived many lives already, yeah. you know? And, uh, and this is 18 years ago. Right. And I'm like, but the, the, not the person that I am today is like, yeah. I can't explain the mask. I can't even do it right now. But the face that I I was making with that and the way I was talking to him in a tone that would just say, you're You're going to die. You're going to die. And you've done like, you know, like I'm so angrily disgusted with you. Like your judgment is here. That type of voice. It was like, it was scary. And I did that a lot, actually, when I felt betrayed. Yeah. My sponsor tells me like, you've metaphorically put that knife to your friend's throat. And you do that still every time you feel like somebody betrays you in any way, shape, or form. And I had to learn from that. That was four years ago that I I learned that behavior and where that came from and why it still happens. But I'm aware of it now, so I can kind of. So I got that to his ear, and I'm looking, and I look over to like, because you know, yeah, getting ready to get ready to. You're gonna ready, kill him in front of the 
whole family. Ready, get ready to pull this, yeah. pull the knife from ear to ear. I know how to do it, you know. And, I, and I'm like, and so I look around, like, and I look back and I see my grandmother sitting there. Bless her heart, I loved her. We had a great relationship, you know. And uh, I, she has a little tear in her eye. I can see going down there, and she's not like. She's looking as if she's about to witness it. Like, she's pretty much sees that she's about to see her son die. That's what I see in her eyes, and I respected that. I respected that to some kind of way different from my mother saying, Danny, please don't. My dad's standing there turning yellow, like, looking like, like, I don't know what to do in this situation. Like, I have no idea what to do. I I don't know what to do, but To be honest, I don't think I'd know what to do either. This is crazy. And my mom's just like, you know, she's crying like, please don't, please don't, please don't. Because she knows I'm going to do She knows me. Yeah, yeah. She knows her son. Yeah, she knows I'm about to do this. Like, I'm yeah. going to do this. And I look and I look back at my grandmother and her just being like, she was just calm as could be, just sitting there stoic. And I just saw that little tear, though, in her eye, which I know she was fighting to keep back. And I just said, I look back at him. She was, we didn't have a lot, you know, but she would always say, Danny, can I make an appointment? To, from the time I was a kid, can I just make an appointment to talk with you? Can we, I'm here in town. I wanted to visit you. When would be a good time for us to sit? And because I was always just running, always going. I never wanted to be, but I always would come visit my grandma. I made a deal with my mother that I would, you know, visit her for lunches and I would go to school. But I was never coming home during that time that I was, you know, on the streets. And um, looking at her and just seeing everything, kind of like my relationship with her, and recognizing that her son was here trying to do the right thing in her book. Like maybe she forced him to do it. I don't know what was happening, but I knew that. I looked back at him and I said, in front of my mother and father, like my parents, I have no problem. I would cut your ear from ear to ear right now and go have an ice cream across the street. And my girl, by the way, is now standing in the hallway. Like she's just mortified. She has no idea what's going on. She's like like watching a horror film. And I, of course, after I explain it to her, she... She understood it, and I had explained the whole convict thing, right? But I said, from ear to ear, I'd cut your throat. No problem and have an ice cream. But because of that woman right there, here's, what you're gonna, here's what's going to happen. You're going to walk as fast as you can out that front door, and you're going to get in your car, and you're going to drive back to Calusa, which was up past Sacramento or in San Diego. And I said, you're not going to look you're not going to look back. You're not going to say bye. You're not going to do anything. You're going to walk straight out the door, thankful that I didn't just cut your throat from ear to ear. Because if you do, I'm going to cut your throat from ear to ear. This is the one chance I'm giving you to walk out of here because of that woman right there. And if you ever go to Arizona or Texas, like you drive around San Diego, because if I ever see your face again, ever, I'm going to kill you, period. And he walked straight out the door and he left. I said, oh, and I said, I'll drive grandma home to Calusa. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you're not driving her nowhere. Like, you stay away from her, that kind of thing. Like, I'll get her home safe and you just get the hell out of here. And and that was, you know, my awakening to dealing with that situation. Since then, my my grandmother has passed away, you know, and there was another time, like, I was in prison again and, you know, like, I missed, you know, I wasn't there. Like I should have been when she was in the hospital, when she was, you know, when she died. And, uh, but before she died, I had a conversation with her on the phone and I was like, what's, what can I do for this woman? And I told her I forgave her, I forgave her son. So I wanted her to go in peace, you know, because she raised this dude, whoever the fuck, she did the best she could. And, uh, and I wanted her to know that because she loved me so much, yeah, you know, and, uh, I wanted her to know that it was okay. 
And did you get something? Did you get some freedom from that? I did it for her at that point. Yeah. But I knew that I was going to have to deal with forgiving this dude too now. <laughs> yeah. You're <laughs> right like, no, at I gotta some do point. This. But because uh, I wasn't, I was always somebody that, you know, did everything in my power to keep my word, to be where I say I'm going to be and do what I say I'm going to do, you know, even when I was on drugs, which is why I was able to climb so high up that ladder in there. But, uh, and by any means necessary, like I never came back with, oh, this guy got robbed. And no, I came with your stuff. And then a month yeah. later told you, yeah, you know what about that situation? Well, he got robbed. I, I made sure everything was cool. Got your thing. Well, I didn't know the program yet. You know, I sent him a messenger, I think, you know, messenger, just like, hey, you know, because grandma's dying, you know, or dying, you know, before she, she left, I said, I, you know, forgive you. And you know what? I don't ever want to see your face again. But for whatever it's worth, like, I forgive you and go live your life, you know, whatever. And uh, and then when I got in the program, I had a different understanding of it, you know, and I got to understand his side. But you got to understand coming from where I come from in prison, like he's a child molester. Right. And he's right. dying. Like people, you know, I've yeah. put many holes in people that, you know, I don't even know are alive today, you know, so I don't even talk about that stuff, but it's like. How did you get to the program? On a, on a, on a, on a whim, I was manipulating. I was like, okay, what's my last, like, I need to go find out how these people do, you know, what's, what's my way out of this. I can play on the drugs. The laws have changed. I can go, you know, cause I was used to always doing, like I said, robbery, guns, kidnapping, possession of a firearm, like great bodily injury, assault with a deadly weapon, not anything like drugs drugs was like easy you get busted with drugs you're like you're not doing that much time right and they want you to do a program now so i downloaded all that and i was like all right well i'm gonna go find the nearest place i went on i had learned who google was and where he lives <laughs> <laughs> and so i asked google <clears throat> where can i go find some people to you know manipulate so i can use their little court cards and show that to my, so I can figure out what they say, what they would say if they were, mm -hmm. if they were me, you know, and mm -hmm. to the PO. Jokes on you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they and got I, you. And I went into the, the to the candy club. I I googled it. I was like, yeah, AA was. And uh, how long cool. ago was that? Because I remember when you first came in. It was uh, well, so my sobriety date's October eighth, two thousand twelve. Okay. But I had been coming in there for like probably a month okay. prior. Just kind of coming to meetings and just, you know, like hitting on girls. Like I remember this lady was like, you want a commitment? And I was like, with you? I remember just being an idiot. Like I had no idea. This was at the speaker meeting too, this lady. And I was hot, hot older blonde. I'm like, a commitment? Yeah. Right? I was just being the clown that I always was. But I was literally like, you know. And, and for people who don't know, I mean, going in the Canyon Club, it's right in the canyon in Laguna Beach. And the people there tend to be very genetically blessed. They tend to be wealthy, well-educated. Yeah, BMW, yeah, you, yeah. You pull in, and it, I mean, it's not, it's it's a it's it's a uh, the most affluent Alano yeah, club you've in the ever world. seen. No, it probably actually is. It is. It is. It yeah, is. It was, I've been around the world. Now yeah, it, too. I've seen them. They're yeah, not, nothing is no, posh. I've no, I've, as posh as my I've girl never would say. seen anything as posh. She's from England. Yeah, it's posh. Posh. So you go to the Canyon Club and how, what changed? I, I, I mean, I know it's a process. Right? I had, yeah, I had just, I mean, I just, I, 
I came and, and I was like trying to get these, I had to still figure out. I was always like, I'm just going to figure out what works here. I'll take it and I'll go and I'll use it and I'll do my own part of, right. you know, version of this right. on whatever it was from drug dealing to talking to that. From the time I talked to that dude on that tractor, it's like, this is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to. And I was like, okay, so there's always a way yeah. to do something. Right. And if I have to go that far, nobody will go that far because mm-hmm. I'll just go farther than anybody will ever go. And I've always that's been my downfall. Like I'll always go further than you will. Remember that, you know. And I would, and um, I just it saved. That's what saved my life, actually, because when I went in in there, I was like trying to figure out what you know. How do I get a core card? What does it look like? Okay, I can get one an eight by ten card. My dad has those, right? I can get an eight by ten card. I can start, right? And I'm looking at them. I'm acting like I have one in there. Oh no, this one isn't mine. This one, like seriously, like trying to just figure out how to do that. And then I was going to go pitch my parole officer on not violating me because I'm in recovery or rehabilitation or treatment or whatever you want to call it at the time, the term that I knew. And, uh, and the, it was the night me, I didn't do, so I didn't do a lot every, I did like a weekend morning meeting sometimes, but I did a lot of the night meetings at first. And like Deborah Carmen is, a, is a, is, is a serious, her and Catherine Marola, Janie Claypool's mom. I don't know if you know her, but these are ni- the night say, angels. Say, say them again without their last names. Catherine and Deborah Carmen. Deborah Carmen always has her okay, last name. Yeah. But, and like Sneed and, and you know, Doug, who, who, who passed away. Just there's, there's, there was people in there in the night meetings, but Deborah specifically, like, and the speaker meetings, like I, I would go to that. Well, I just kind of worked my way up to that, but. She was just like so nice. Like these people were so nice to me. And like the women would leave their purses on the table and go to the bathroom. And like the crazy, like <laughs> nice cars. And I'm like sitting around, I'm like, I could just, I wonder how much money she's got in there. What's, which car's hers? Like, you know, yeah. it's going through my head at first. I'm like, and then, uh, cause I could just go grab this car. I got yeah. an hour, like there's 45 minutes. That's the head start. Like if I just got the keys, nobody would know. I could be out of here. I could be in San Diego and this thing would be chopped up and sold but in two hours, you know? So then I have some money in my pocket, just those kinds of things. And, uh, and Deborah would come up to me and just be like, look at you, look at your eyes. They're, they're, they're getting so much clearer. You're looking every time you come here, you look better. Like she would say things like that. She's like, are you going to come back tomorrow? She'd, she'd make me kind of have it. We almost had a date. And I was like, felt like, and she's an older lady. I mean, she's a beautiful older lady, but that's not what this is about. It was yeah. the fact that I didn't have a mother and I still have these issues. Like I had a mother, but I didn't. Right. So I have these issues with women where I look for that comfort that I didn't have all those years. I was just around these hardcore convicts, you know, and that is difficult to manage with my sexual, um, you know, right. needs as well. But then it's just become, a, so a lot of, I have a lot of women friends, put it like that. And my girl, God bless her heart. She understands. Yeah. And I just, I do. And, uh, and the way that she just welcomed me, it was like, so like all, all eyes were on me, but she, you know, everybody was like staring at me or looking at me, but she was like this icon at this place that everybody loved and respected and she was giving me time and she was like giving me special attention in my eyes right and I was like so I I felt compelled to to come back again and then I and I did and I don't know I remember sitting at the book study one night and I'm like reading this book and, and you know I came in and it was a book meeting 
And as soon as I sat down, of course, like two people next, it's like, my turn to read, what? Oh, oh okay. So I got to read this paragraph. Right. It's, Constructing acts of kindness without expecting anything in return. And I was like, who are these people? <laughs> you know, like, that's crazy. I'm like, who does that? But I thought about Deborah and I thought all the stuff these people are like, oh, yeah, I'm right. You guys are doing this stuff. Nobody does this. Like, it's kill or be killed. It's, you know, this is this is a fairy tale in this place, which it looked like a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. But just like that downloaded and then people are like, can I give you a ride? I'm like, no, I'll walk. And I walked to my parents' house. I didn't want your help. I didn't want a ride, you know. And uh, and people just let me do my thing. But her and, you know, a couple other people, the men didn't want to come up to me and talk to me. Like I was was not approachable, you know. And I still had dope in my pocket. I was in this little pocket right here and a little backpack that had my 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 12, 12 whatever, locos, something I forget now. Four locos. Four locos, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I would drink that, and I'd have my dope, yeah. you know, and I had my little pipe or whatever, and I'd leave, you know, five minutes before the meeting, you know, and she'd come out because I'd be sweating like a snitch at a gangster party in the corner, just like <laughs> not wanting people to hug me or talk to me, and I had dope going through my system, and I was just like, okay, this is enough, you know, and I don't know why I kept coming back to put myself through that torture. But it was just to have her, you know, and I'd be outside smoking a cigarette, you know, and she, and, and after the meeting, you know, I'd be kind of over in that little area and she'd come talk to me and just, I don't know. I, I started to like want to see what this was about. I'm like, these people are like too nice. And um, I had other experiences, you know, but mainly like I always remember her. She was like, well, you want to come to dinner with us? And just like she was very uh, welcoming to me and she always tried to make me feel good you know and like you like i was always welcome like come here and invite me to her house like i'm like lady you don't know me like this is not yeah. you don't know who i am like what i would do yeah. i could take everything in your house you live in laguna that's great and i remember those thoughts going through my head but i remember thinking like there's there was like this block there that was like there's you couldn't this is an angel like you can't do that this is an angel and it, it's not physically possible for you to hurt this lady and it wasn't and um I uh, I got a truck. I got this. I had this rusty Dakota Dodge Dakota. It was green and it was rusty. And the door, I had to use a C clamp to close the the driver's side <laughs> door. I remember. And uh, I was doing my DUI classes, and I had just done like the third month, so I could get my restricted license back. And uh, right away, as soon as I got it, and I had the truck, and I could drive with my you know parents. Like I was living on their couch. We're all tough forty year olds go when they mm-hmm. get out of prison. And and they're done with their run, and I'm living there and uh, getting money from her whenever I can to pay for four locos and and whatever else I needed, and going in the alley and just drinking beer or or hard alcohol and smoking cigarettes and everything. And I take my truck the second I get the license, you know, the restricted license. It wasn't even a valid license, right? Like, mm-hmm. and I'm gone. I'm in San Diego. This is about a month after you know I've been going to meetings, maybe one or two a week, right? I've been coming and you know, trying to pick up a girlfriend or something, just like kind of coming there and back to her and and uh, some of the other ladies there that were always like interested in me to help me, right? Which I was attracted to, right? Yeah. Um, and because uh, nobody wanted to help me, like nobody ever wanted to help me. Like I had to always get it myself, but I was waiting to prove them wrong and see who was like actually going to try to like want to have sex with me or, you know, something. There's always some ulterior motive that right. I was expecting at any point in time. And anyways, I took off to San Diego on my truck and like in a period of like eight hours, I went through every old, like, like not old, but 
gutter dope dealing person that I knew got high and drunk and a fifth and like and was whacked out of my mind like freaking out now I'm 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 in North Park I parked my truck and I'm like I don't have money to get back I've basically like prostituted my mind and body alike to men and women alike to the devil alike. like the hell the the the, the place that I live was pretty in Ocean Beach where I came from had like a, this little like dark underlying I don't know what you want to call it but it was evil the hell's angels world was always to me with the meth I guess gave me this like I was in a different world yeah. that was always there was like a beast that yeah. was always there waiting to energy put me in the yeah. wrong place and give me fear or you know hurt and um I remember like thinking man I can't I can't get home because I don't have money for gas. I don't want to get pulled over again, and I'm going to go back to prison again. My last case was a transportation case, and I did 18 months, and I got out, and then here I was, right? And I can talk about that too, but there's just I can go on for hours. Like Unlocked for Life is a book that I'm in the process of trying to write, which is just telling as much of my story as I can possibly document. Yeah. But um, the uh, I wind up at a bus stop. I walk and walk and walk trying to figure out in my mind process how am I going to get I don't want my mom to go through this again like here I am I just got my license not even a license right and here I am in San Diego instead of Laguna Beach because she lives in Laguna Beach I'm back in my neighborhood off Midway and Rosecrans and I'm sitting at a bus stop because I'm thinking like that's the only thing I can possibly do right now where I don't look you know conspicuous or whatever you want to call it and the cops are kind of driving by and they're not looking at me they're not stopping they just keep going it's like 3 30 in the morning and i'm sitting on the bus and i've just come to the confirmation like i've decided i'm gonna end it like there's semis that come 18 wheelers they come hauling ass down rosecrans and i'm just gonna there's no way i can calculate it perfectly where there's no way they'll be able to hit the brakes that fast i can just step right in front of them that'll end it there's no way i'm gonna be able to take that kind of a hit and not die. So I don't have the balls to put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger, but this I'll, I can do. In this state of mind, I'm in to boot. Like, I'm done. I don't want to go back to prison again. I'm not going to do this to my family anymore. I don't want to be back in the cycle. Here I am again. Like, I'm two, 39 years old. Like, this is ridiculous. So life isn't worth this. Like, if this is what my life's about, it's not worth it. I don't want, this isn't a good place. This isn't a life. So I had firmly decided that's what I was going to do. And I was, I was about to step in front of the next semi. I remember them going by. I was like, I got to wait for one that's just speeding. Like I want one that's going fast and I'm just going to act like I dropped something. I'm just going to jump right in front of it, you know? And, uh, as I see one, I see one that's coming, right? The lights are green. I'm like, okay, this is the one. And, uh, all of a sudden I, this light goes on across the street at the top of this like warehouse looking building. It's like a bright light, but it, clicked so loud in my brain like it echoed into my brain it was like click click and it turned off click click on and off and i just kept it was like getting my attention and as the semi comes up like it it stays on right and i'm like what the hell is that like is that like it reminded me of like a lighthouse you know Mm -hmm. and i look at it when it's on you know now and i have this my life flashes before my eyes kind of type moment. But I go back to, I see myself from the time I was born to the time I was, 
you know, to everything that happened from, you know, to me just doing all the the bad things that I did and the things I was a part of and the things that uh, happened to me and that I did to myself and prostituted myself, my soul, my body to evil, you know, um, I saw it all and uh, everything like fast yeah it, not in a linear form like i was having some kind of there was no nothing coming out of my mouth nothing yeah. coming out of this light's mouth right and i'm thinking it's the devil it's it's an evil they're demons they're still fucking with me like yeah everybody they, they've been doing that for forever and i had a lot of evil experiences with like witches and all this kind of stuff people reading your palm and just crazy stuff that's happened as i was a kid but which forms our perceptions, right, of things. Yeah. And, uh, and I see that and I get – and I and it, there comes a point where I'm, like, about to rationalize and say, no, but and, – and explain something and say that's not right. Like, I'm getting ready to do that and I realize I'm not even talking to anybody. And here I am about to make an excuse for, yet again, what I always did was make an excuse for something. And I conceded to – all right, you're right. And I wasn't talking, but I was about to like make an excuse, right? And I wasn't talking. And I was just like, but I was saying, all right, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's true. All of it. So that's why I'm going to end my life. Like, I don't right. want to do this anymore. And as I got up with, you know, tears in my eyes, and I felt like this, this, like these two hands pu pushing me back, warm hands pushing me back on the, on the bench. And, um, and, uh, it was, he basically just said, that's not what this is about. Like, that's that's not what I want. Like, you're not understanding me. Because I thought it was like the right. devil, right? Right. It's like, you're not getting this. Like, that's not what this is about. And I don't want you to do that. You know? And I was like, tears were coming down. I'm just like, well. And I realized what the type of person I was, you know? And I just said, is there anything that I can do then to make this right? Can you help me make this right? And, uh. Right away, I heard a, a horn on a, on a semi, one of the ones I was going to jump in front, right? It's honking, hink, hink, and it drives by. And right on the side of the uh, truck, it said, yes, we deliver. And I watched it go down, and I look, as I look back to my left, here's this little old lady with a shopping cart with all kinds of bottles and trinkets. Like, there's no way I couldn't have heard her come down it's like harbor and wilson is exactly in costa mesa exactly where i'm sitting but in san diego's version it's midway and rosecrans and uh there's no way i couldn't have heard her come down the sidewalk like there's a long stretch of sidewalk but she's like can you help me right away like breaks this whole thing up and i'm like yeah maybe but probably not probably you can help me but what what do you need i mean i'm thinking this right yeah. like sure what can i do for you because i was always respectful to older people you know I just learned that in prison too, but you always respect your elders. You always, you know, you don't hit women. And, um, even though a lot of people did hit <laughs> women, right? But you're not supposed to, like that was yeah. the right thing to do. But um, I said, yeah, what? and I'm being cocky, like to in my own mind, I'm like, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. What? Sure. How can I help you? What can I do for you? She's like, will you walk with me over there to that Walgreens? I'm like, Girl, in my head, I'm, I swear. It's three I'm in saying, the morning. Yeah, right? I'm like, girl, you got this far. Like, I'm sure you can get another, like, 50 feet or whatever it is. But instead, I'm like, sure, I'll walk you over there. So she leaves her cart right there. And she's, like, hobbling and we're walking. And she starts telling me, yeah, I'm just, I'm very dehydrated. I haven't drinking water and since I can't remember. 
and I haven't eaten anything solid since I can't remember. So I'm just not really thinking straight right now. So I just need to get some water and anything, a granola bar, something in my stomach so I can think straight. I'm like, oh, well, okay. And I'm just like, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like thinking about what happened right now. Like, what was that light? And I'm walking with her and then she says, because then, then I might be able to figure out what my next steps are, where I'm going to sleep, when, you know, it's tough out here on the streets, right? And then and and we get to, we cross the street, we get to the parking lot of the Walgreens that's open 24 hours, right? And she grabs my hand, right, like this, and she goes, okay, that's far enough. You're a big boy. You can go the rest of the way on your own. And she pulls, and when she pulls her hand away, there's a $5 bill in my hand, right? And she's like, go on. So I like, I'm like, what the hell? What's that like? Um, she gave you the five dollar bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I feel like I was in the Twilight Zone, so, right? Yeah. I'm like, dude. So I'm like looking at her. She's like, go on. And then so I start walking towards the store, and um, and I get to the door and I look back, half expecting her to like fly away or she <laughs> wasn't there or whatever the case, right? And she's just hobbling back to the bus stop seat where I was, but and and her. Uh, her grocery cart, right? So I go inside and I'm like, I realize then I'm famished. Like I'm, I'm so thirsty. I can't even talk. And I get a gallon of water and I get a, one of those little green yeah, uh, granola bars, granola bars with yeah. the two in there. Right. And I, and I, and I save enough money to take the bus from there back oh. up to my car, my okay. truck. And, um, so I got that in my, I was always like, okay, I can do, I always could manage the money for what I needed next whether it be dope or hotel room or gas for the car or whatever. So that was just like a physical thing. And I put that in my pocket. I, I remember started drinking. I drink this whole gallon of water, like down, right? I eat the granola bar, I down that. And I'm like, now what? You know, and I'm like, well, all I could do is go back to the bus stop, right? Because she interrupted my little like thing. So I go back to the bus stop and I sit down. And I'm sitting there like trying to process, which is what I always did. This is how I almost went insane with these this outlaw biker gang that doesn't kill people. They drive you mad. Literally, they drive you insane. Literally. That's how they get rid of you because they don't want to go back to prison for murder anymore. So they have you go kill yourself, you know, or yeah. hurt somebody. But I would always be processing things. So I sit back down and I'm like, okay, what was that light? How did this lady, yes, we delivered the horn hogs, right? And then I hear uh, the click, click. I look up, and then I hear a hon another horn honking, another semi. And it's driving by, and it says on the side, keep your eye on the road, not the burrito, right? And people took me like, dude, that was a Rubio's truck or pizza, you know what I mean? Whatever it was, right? Yes, we delivered was a Pete's truck, and that was Rubio's yeah. truck. Like, yeah. okay. But for me... It was a, it was a, it was a moment of clarity. It was like, yeah. this is my life. This is what I do. I'm so worried about who's watching me, what's going on, how did this happen, this, that I'm not watching what I need. I'm not doing what I need to be doing, you know? And so this was, this was a way for me to hear it. Yeah. Human mouth couldn't tell me anything because I could out talk you and manipulate and sell you by the time you got done starting with, you need help with drugs and alcohol. You're like, oh my God, you poor thing here take this money. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go get high. Right. You're, you're better off that way. Like, I'm sorry I interrupted your life. Right. And I made you feel stupid for trying to talk to me, but I'm processing this and then, you know, keep your eye on the road, not the burrito. And that was the breakthrough. Like that, 
came through to my brain that was like, somebody understands me. And it's not <laughs> even a human. It's this stupid light over here, you know? And, uh, and I, st- and just from that point forward, like I got onto starting to not so much worry about that, like what happened anymore. And I was just like, okay, what's my next step? So, all right, I won't think about that right now. So what do I do next? And I had like this, uh, I don't know. I was like sober all of a sudden, I knew exactly what I was going to do. I was going to get on the bus. I was going to go back to my car. I was going to call my friend who I knew there, borrow money from him to put in the gas tank and get home. And I explained it all to him just what had happened. I didn't tell him about that. I didn't talk about that for a long time, actually. I don't talk about it a whole lot. But when I got back that next day, that was October 7th. So October 8th, um, I didn't do any drugs, right? I'm out. And I remember uh, on the 9th, I'm in the alley. And I'm drinking or I'm smoking a cigarette. And I remember going like this because I'm used to having that. Yeah. You know, and I remember going like this and there was nothing there in my hand. And I realized, wait a second, I'm always drinking to get rid of the feeling for the meth, at least for the first three days. Like I, I know that I'm programmed that I'm going to have to have alcohol and sleep uh, until I get more dope. Otherwise, I have this like gnarly feeling, which I think is a little bit of both. Right. Like the. The yeah. nastiness that I was trying to numb, but also the 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 effects of the meth that, you know, you're coming off of, right? Even though it's not a physical detox, I get that, but still it's uncomfortable to have foreign toxins coming out of your body. And I realized, wait a second, I'm not even feeling anything. Like I slept last night, I slept the night before, uh, here I am on day three, and I woke up to like, I don't even need alcohol. I don't feel like I'm coming off dope. I'm like, if I don't need alcohol right now, and I don't need to get high right now. I don't need the cigarette last time. And I threw it down and I crushed up the cigarettes and threw it away. So October 9th, I quit smoking cigarettes <laughs> and I'm like, I don't need that. And then it was basically from that point on, it was just like, I knew where to go, right? Where people are sober. So I went, to, I, they had only, I went back to the meetings, you know, and I just started showing up there and I had now a sobriety date that I didn't, I obviously I had a, a marker for yeah. what day it was. Right. But um, I didn't get, I got a sponsor in like a month. Here's what I want to uh, touch on is you're in your recovery. You had to recover from prison and from drugs and alcohol. And what were some of the things that have been the most useful in your recovery that have allowed you to stay on this path when otherwise you would have stepped off because you were so used to a different way of life? So that, that, you know, the keep your eye on the road, not the burrito, and and uh, and then what the program teaches you about being, um, you know, open minded, and uh, that compiled with you know my routine that's engraved in me from yeah. prison. Um, that's I a kind big, of, you've talked about that. That's a yeah, big piece. It's of, a big piece of what I believe for anybody sobriety. It just happens to be a similarity there yeah, that yeah. that that makes sense. But it's staying busy always having some kind of, you know, my meetings involved in the routine where I have to make the meeting. I do like jujitsu four nights a week. I do that. I do, I do, I have this set schedule throughout the week. Like I did with my little college curriculum day, right. To become this covert agent that's going to be saving the world one day. Right. Right. And, um, that is just, I mean, the, obviously the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous has helped me immensely. I mean, I've, I went for I just the complete opposite. I was a cinch for this program because it was always like Captain Sabo, like I said, or 
trying to help the underdog who has now become the addict and alcoholic. You know, I believe firmly that the, you know, the most important thing that we can do as human beings is help the person who is where we once were. Yeah. And that's where I have the most experience. Right. So I'm, I don't need to have a letters behind my name. I don't have to be, uh, you know, a, I don't have to have a degree in it. I have a degree in it, one that nobody's ever going to be able to teach in school. So uh, with the program, it's it's just I was a sense for it because now I can, you know, I can help that underdog. I can use the routine from prison to help me stay on a routine that keeps me on the right path, you know. Are you currently, do you work with people who are trying to get sober after long-term incarceration is that something that you... So currently my company is called Team Effort Financial, and no, it's not. I had, and that was as of December, we started this new business because the laws kind of changed in the rehab world. And yeah, I was on this, uh, you know, this, this journey to save the world in that regard by Unlocked for Life was one program that we tried to launch um, to help break the recidivism problem, yeah. people going in and out. And then I realized that the sobriety world or the recovery world was people were more open to help people that are addicts and alcoholics than they were, are to help people like me. Who, Interesting. Yeah. Know, convicts and animals that have done bad things that nobody understands unless you sit down and have this type of a conversation with every single person in the world, which you can't do. Right. So, and even then they can only barely understand it, but they might, you know, Try. Try, you know. So I tried to do that. Then on uh, Recovery Boulevard was helping people get into treatment and doing marketing for the – I was trying to like, how can I make money and help people at the same time? Because I have to make money. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm not some retired, like, person that's a do-gooder that can just say, oh, I'm just going to save the world. And no, it's not about money. No, I have to pay my bills. I have to make a living. So. I was like, how can, but my mind's like, how can I do this? How can, like, my dad once told me, son, you need to stop selling kilos and pounds and start selling motors and transmissions or you're going to kill your mom. So I I remember converting just the skills skills over to, you know, sales. If you were going to tell someone, like someone getting out of a long-term prison sentence who, you know, does struggle with addiction and that person does want help and does want to change their life. What are like four things that you would tell them to do in order to start to transition? Obviously, the transition takes time. Like what what are some like four or five things you would tell them to do in order? Obviously, one of them's a routine. It's funny. I'm thinking about what I would tell them when I was talking to you earlier about the kids that were coming into prison or going to prison. I'm like, don't lie. Don't lie. Don't make promises. Mm-hmm. Just don't make promises. Don't gamble and don't do drugs, <laughs> right? And uh, so now, what now it's be? like you know, don't do drugs. <laughs> like stop yeah. drinking and using. Yeah, you know, it's hard for me to say that there's other programs out there besides Alcoholics Anonymous or NA or whatever to help that type of a person. Because I know they're there, but I don't have the firsthand experience. Yeah, but you're what just I can, you're just what coming I, from your experience. But what, what I can say is. You know, talking to anybody now, I would tell them, like, go to a meeting. Go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And what if they feel like they nobody understands? To, you don't have to be an alcoholic. You don't have to be a drug addict. Like, go fit in with a bunch of people that are all meeting every day at different hours of the day across the world. 
coming up with different ways and sharing with them on how to live a better way of life, a better quality of life. And who understands the cycle of you not being comfortable with reality out here on the streets, as hard as that is to hit on the ego, like not knowing what a man of 30 years old should know in front of his wife and kids or whatever he has, like that humility has to come from understanding that that's okay, man. You don't know. You don't know what it is. You're a female and you've done a lot of time. I know a lot of women that have done a lot of time and they're in the same boat. Like you don't know. So go and find, you know, just get help. It doesn't matter whether you uh, go to an AA meeting or not, you know, find somebody else, preferably more than one person that's doing what you would like to be doing in life, you know, that has been through what you've been through. And it's not a puzzle at that point. Like if somebody else has your background or your experience and they're doing what you wish you could be doing, you can ask them for help. Yeah, do what they do. Like you I want said, what they have do what they do. Some people don't want to help other people, but I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just an avid believer that if you ask me, I don't care who you are, and yeah, I want to help people, but you ask somebody. I've asked for the genuine, quietest person yeah. that doesn't want to talk to anybody for help on a subject that they know about, and they're more than willing to do whatever they can yeah. to help. Yeah, you come because they understand. It's just yeah. a feeling of the best thing you can do is help somebody who is where you once were. They know that topic. They know it. Yeah. So it makes them feel good that they can actually know something about something, which most people have self-esteem issues. They don't think they know anything about anything. Yeah. I know a lot about a couple of things (laughs) (laughs) and nothing about a lot of stuff. But if I had to say four things, it would be like, you know, try a meeting. If you don't have anything else, you can go to an Alano club and you can find – Definitely, without a doubt, convicts that have done a lot of time, mm-hmm. convicts that have done a few stints, people that were heroin addicts, that were gangsters, like they're all through Alcoholics Anonymous for sure. I know specific meetings that is only convicts. So you can find them, but you can find people that will, you know, that will help you with the addiction of doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol. Yeah. Whatever it, it was, selling drugs, yeah, selling, doing, doing licks, you know, yeah. whatever it takes to that, that puts you back in prison. Going to prison was an addiction for me, obviously. Yeah. So, you know, and be open to the fact that you don't know what you don't know. Like you have to just trust that. I mean, I trusted so many people in the organizations that I was around that were supposed to like be blood out, blood in, blood out, bound by honor, like have my you know, back for life and through anything. And that is just a lie. It's not, unless I'm going to do life in prison. Yeah. And even then I'm still in a cell. Like I'm not experiencing anything. The real, like the toughest people I've ever met in my life and everybody, you know, you've heard everything that I've been through in the different prisons I've been in, in the streets and all that. Like they, the men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous are the toughest by far people I've ever come in contact with because they're facing reality today and they've showed me how to face reality as much as I was just like this third striker convict just drug addict just beast of a dog you know on the streets and they've taken me in the way I walk the way I talk the way I used to squat lean against a wall stroll speak you know all of that has changed, and it's all due to these people who want to see me succeed. And it didn't cost me a dime. I saw you come in 
And it makes me want to cry because I saw you come in and you definitely, you know, you definitely stuck out and you definitely, you know, your chances were lower than the rest of ours. And there in our meetings, like the ones that you and I go to, Mm -hmm. there are there are many of us who had every available resource and it was like all we had to do was just attach onto it. Right. And like everything in our life was pushing in that direction and we were the only ones going against the stream. And you had the opposite where your whole life was everything behind you was going against you and pushing you back into prison. Like it was it was easier for you to go back to prison than it was to get sober and and live a good life. Like that was in in many ways that was the more obvious choice and you uh found a way to find the similarities instead of the differences. Even when the differences might have been big, you found the similarities and attached to those and then just have continued to do the deal. And you're one of those people where the transformation's been really huge. It's been like almost physical and and changed. And it's such a testament to the work that you've done and the work that goes on in this secret society and that, that, you know, other people don't get to hear. I mean, they see you and I'm sure people who knew you before and after, but when you're walking around, you know, this, my office, this building, nobody here knows Like you can't tell, you know, they don't know. And the fact that you are integrated and are a positive contributing member of society is a huge, it's a really big deal. It's a really big deal. It's not, it was not the obvious thing and that you can help other people who've been through that and, and people who I think use prison as a way to escape regular life too. You know, it's easy to be institutionalized. Yeah, no, for sure. And the, and the work that you're talking about being, you know, the work of on myself, Mm -hmm. you know, like through through this, through working with another man, I had no tools to to do, but the work that the program gives you, which you would maybe get in a rehab center, but really I didn't go to a treatment center. I went to the meetings and I learned how to, you know, what you guys, what, you know, what the meetings, what the program taught me, which was these steps. So I, I don't want to preach to you know, do the steps and, and all no, it's that. Just one. It's just like be open-minded, like trust that there's another way other than the way you're so familiar with on how to do things. You if know. you're uncomfortable, it's working. Yeah. 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 You know, like have the courage to be uncomfortable, actually. Like have the courage to, I mean, we've been through from county jails to the process of going into prison to being strung out and being sick on heroin or speed or whatever the case may be. Like you can go through that for so long and put yourself through so much misery to try to make a dollar because in your mind you believe you're putting food on the table or you're, you know, and it's the only way you know how, like there's another way. There is another way for sure. And I found it in, in Alcoholics Anonymous and I found it in, you know, being open-minded like I there's I listen to other people I I seek them out and yeah I'm still pretty isolated I still do a lot on my own but that's my nature I had to do it on my own but I take a lot I listen to a lot of podcasts I listen to a lot of books I I always self-educated myself and um, the uh, you know the most important thing that has helped me in every other walk of life is being open being willing to ask somebody else is there another way to do this like, is there another way for me to live my life? Is there another way for me to stay out of prison? And then the answer is yes. Say yeah. And when you hear yes, like don't say, okay, well, thanks for that, and walk away. Like actually follow that through. And you'll yeah. find that, you know, that coupled with, you know, adapting your routine 
yeah. to new Include things. Include like, the recovery yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, to just switch the things out that you're doing. If you don't have a routine right now, like I didn't when I got out of prison, every other time except for when I got into a structured program. Program meaning not inpatient, but program meaning the program of Alcoholics Anonymous where I can start to incorporate a meeting here and there, you know, reading a book, you know, talking to a sponsor, talking to other guys, and then everything else that comes with that. Like you can't, the book talks about how do you remove that invisible line? Like there is no removing it. You cannot. Like I'm a true addict alcoholic, true addict alcoholic. I'm in a moment. I don't like what's going down. Right away, I'm going to plan A, which is the only thing I've ever known all my life, and that's drink, use, rob, steal, hustle, cheat, something. Plan B has to be built so I can supplement it. And the only way I did that was by going to meetings, listening to people, constructing acts of kindness, not expecting anything in return. Yeah. And hearing that kind of thing over and over and over again and help people and do this. And then I've just formed a new routine that incorporates all these little pieces of things that I've learned, you know, through all these people who are all meeting on a regular basis only to try to figure out and nurture, you know, growing a better quality and higher quality of life every day, which I think is amazing. Like I've, when I figured that math out, I'm like, hold on a second. Like normies are not in a good position in this world. Yeah, we have, compared to yeah. us, like we we've got basically a bunch of people meeting that we can all work together on and we're all practicing and sharing with each other how we can live a better quality of life every day with any solution to any problem that comes up. Like you can you can do anything, you know, through that. So yeah, I don't know if I got into the four things you asked me to get yes. to. But, no, it's good. You know, I always start with like eat. Drink a lot of water, like (laughs) sleep the same amount of time every night. Our survival mechanisms. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your amazing story and and just for being a beacon of hope for a lot of people who have the same background. And um, I hope, I'm sure that this will help somebody. Well, thank you for having me. And I hope, I hope it does. I hope people do see that there's another way. Me too. And give a little understanding on those, you know, who... Who were in yeah. the same position. You Absolutely. Know? But yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 